Welcome back to the Ed Walters Appreciation Hour. I'm Rob Christofferson. I'm Sam Fredrickson. And I'm Jason Moitoso. That's right. We are back together again to conclude our series on Ed Walters and the Gulf Breeze sightings. Gentlemen, how are you doing this evening? Well, Jason's sick. So I'm present. No, not, I'm not only sick. is I he just, like I, I'm. I'm experiencing vocal issues. Not only is he robbed (laughs) of his physical voice, he has also been robbed of his spiritual voice. What? In that he is he he's done with this. He's he hates this. Sam, if that was the case, I would be done every week. That's true. (laughs) He's he's got some fortitude in him. That's that's what we love about him. Thanks, buddy. Um, so because of that, he may or may not talk that much. Yeah. Uh, uh, Rob, I love how you said that this was the uh, the Ed Walters Appreciation Hour. Isn't this like our third recording? This is the third Ed Walters Appreciation <laughs> uh, Hour. It is. It, it We've really appreciated is. him a lot. Uh, is he still alive? Uh, we're we're going to touch on that at the end of this episode. Because uh, I'd sure as hell like to be the man who kills him. <laughs> wow. Wow. The, the cruelty here is uh, already unleashed on this podcast. <laughs> uh, what is that? Minute and a half in. Minute and a half All in. Right. Boom. Well, we did it. All right. This is uh this is the kind of content that you're uh going to receive this evening. I mean, it's the kind of content that Ed Walters brings out in the best of us. So uh, you know It's, it's what Ed would want. You know, it's it's premium. Yeah. Oh yeah, it is premium. And you know what? It's what the people want. The people are True. excited for this. True. And speaking really quick about the people. Yes. Okay. I'm go- I'm just going to I'm just going to take over and just imagine that this is now an episode of the Not Alone podcast, which it's not. It is? Sort is of. it? <laughs> it's... Are, well, this is interesting, isn't it? It is. Uh, it is going up on our feed, so it might as well be. And I'd like to talk about one of our people really quick, uh mm-hmm. who is one of our probably I would say most devoted listeners, uh Charlotte. It is Charlotte's birthday. I think it's going to be like the day that this comes out probably. Later on in the week. We're recording on the 12th, but I, I'm assuming this will be out in a few days. Yes. Uh, and so we just wanted to say happy birthday, Charlotte. Happy birthday. We're happy just birthday. So... I'm, I'm oh, not even oh here. Oh, my God. <laughs> Did you hear that? Rob chimed in. He doesn't even know you. I don't know you. <laughs> that's just the kind of guy Rob is. And that's just the kind of person you are. So happy birthday. Thank you for being uh, one of our best listeners. Do not... Everyone else, do not email me. I am not going to tell you happy birthday. This is a special one-off. Okay. All right, moving forward. That's that's what I had. I'm, I'm done. Okay. So... I'm just going to fall asleep for the rest of the episode. <laughs> that's that's okay man that's okay we're uh we're, we're coming to the it's the final lap it's the final stretch <laughs> we're almost towards we're almost over that finish line so thank uh, the lord since it's been a while uh since we talked about our patron saint of the abductees ed walters 
I, it's kind of fitting that uh, we, we do a little um, uh, kind of a reminder, a refresher, a summary of what we've been through already. And and I know for for Jason, it's a lot. You know, it, it, the emotional toll this series has taken on him with Rob, you know, I feel the nothing. combined back catalog of Not Alone episodes. I can only imagine. He's in a rough spot right now. He, <laughs> he is. is. No, I'm great. Cozy. <laughs> I got my hoodie on. He wants some tea. All right. I'm ready. All right. That sounds nice. <laughs> yes. So in November of 1987, the small town of Gulf Breeze, Florida, became a UFO hotspot thanks to a 41-year-old building contractor named Ed Walters. For nearly six months, Ed supplied the local newspaper, the Gulf Breeze Sentinel, with pictures of UFOs that he captured with his Polaroid camera. These photos gained national attention and would be the catalyst for hundreds of Gulf Breeze residents to report their UFO sightings in the area. Ed had numerous UFO experiences over the course of these six months, and according to his testimony, was nearly abducted many times by the UFOs that he photographed. (laughs) He's he's very up close and personal with them. (laughs) He is. And that's always been what's really I loved about Edward, if I may call mm-hmm. him that, is—is uh, is that even his name, or is it like Edwin? <laughs> um, no, I'm pretty sure it's Edward. I'm gonna go with Edward, and even if not, we speak the reality that we create. So, um, <laughs> I've always loved Edward because he would not allow himself to be abducted, and no. and he was just so. You hear about all these idiots like betty and barney hill and, oh, and antonio villabolas <laughs> just just walking just getting picked up you know this man had the forethought to to fight back and i'm proud of him i really it's, am it's almost like an old fisherman's tale where he's like oh i almost got you to life wait are you saying that ed walters is these aliens moby dick ed hey, walters hey, is hey, the hey. whale I didn't say it, you did. All right. <laughs> that's totally fair. <laughs> I, I think that's fairly accurate. He, um, you know, he is um, the whitest whale of this tale, so... Uh, that's yeah, true. Yes. From yes. now on, can we please only refer to the uh, aliens as Captain Ahab? Yep, that's, that's right. perfectly fine. That's canon. <laughs> that is canon now. What have I begun? <laughs> <laughs> That's probably my favorite thing you've ever, like, favorite observation you've ever made in the entirety of Not Alone. Well, one of us is welcome. (laughs) One of us is excited about that. (laughs) I'm pretty excited about that. I'll be honest. It was pretty, it was pretty great. So his experiences, though, ended on May 1st, 1988. Now, Sam, question for you. May 1st, do you know whose birthday in ufology that is? J. Allen Hynek? You are correct, sir. That really? Is, yes, that just, is yes. J. It's Allen essentially, I don't know how many of you grew up going to Sunday school, and they'd like ask you a question, and you just be like, oh, Jesus. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> and that's exactly how J. Allen Hynek is for ufology. He's always the right answer. That makes sense. He is. Now. He really is. <laughs> I'm proud so... of myself, actually, for getting that. <laughs> Yes, uh, a a frustrated Ed Walters on May 1st, 1988, finally yielded to the aliens' demands and was abducted. Well, 
He thinks he was abducted. During his final encounter, he awoke on the beach of Shoreline Park, missing approximately an hour and 15 minutes of time. He also claimed to have an unnatural fear for his daughter's safety, bruises on his head, and a strange substance underneath his fingernails that had a foul odor. Oh, no. Yes. And, And that's where we left you at the end of part two of this series back in September. So for part three, we're going to touch on some of Ed's lifelong encounters with these aliens. You know, we're not really spoiling anything here. You know, there's an abduction narrative coming and uh, we're going to focus. (laughs) Yeah, it works. Yes. You're Uh, chosen. You're special. (laughs) Yes. So uh, yeah, we're going to focus on these hypnosis sessions as well as the uh, famous flap that occurred in Gulf Breeze after 1988 and lasted until about 1997. So Ed came away from his final encounter on May 1st feeling unsettled, to say the least. It was the culmination of a six-month ordeal of harassment from these alien beings, and he had some <laughs> questions. <laughs> I imagine this is exactly the cadence that Ed used while talking. I've got some questions. And so in this in a in a like metaphorical um reading of this event if we were to like invoke the images of of the literary world and mythology and stuff, you would almost see this this as a a transcendental moment when the the hunted doesn't become the hunter, right? He's not, he's already done that when he grabbed his gun and started firing it into the air. <laughs> yes. He doesn't become the hunter. Instead, he he becomes the knower of the hunter, right? Instead of being the one who's supposed to be being known by these aliens, he decides that it's his turn to know. And that's, that's interesting. You don't mm-hmm. usually see such things happen. Usually people don't willingly just say, all right, I guess the only thing that, the only way we're going to end this is... By submitting, and especially a guy like Ed, but you know, people surprise you, I guess. Yeah, and you know, there's always surprises from Ed Walters in in the numerous pages of the books that he has written, which I I will bring up is actually not just two, but three, three books. <sighs> it's almost like he keeps changing his narrative to get more uh, interest. Oh, we're gonna touch on that later. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps so... evolving. <laughs> He was sure that something happened to him that night again, but he he wasn't totally sure. So he consulted with Don Ware, MUFON's state director of Florida, uh, Charles Flanagan, the state section director, and WEAR TV reporter Mark Curtis. And they suggested that he undergo hypnosis to retrieve these memories. And that's where a man by the name of Dr. Dan C. Overlay... Overlaid, sorry, comes into the picture. Uh, he was a clinical psychologist specializing in forensic psychology and clinical hypnosis. At one point, he was the president of the Florida Board of Examiners of Psychology and of the Florida Psycho- Psychology Association. At uh, one point. At one point. 
there was something that happened that made it that that was not the case anymore. Do we know what that is? Did he just retire? Or um, yeah, it's the fact that he got old. Um, okay, okay. <laughs> yes, um, and pertaining to his character, he was said to use humor and crack insightful jokes to make serious points. So he was a pretty approachable guy, pretty funny guy. But he also had serious all concerns right, right. regarding the professional licensing of psychologists in Florida. And to prove his point, he went through the process to get his hamster, F.H. Overlaid, known as Fuzzy Hamster Overlaid, licensed and was successful in doing so. He be- his, his hamster oh, wait, wait, became what? a licensed psychologist huh. in the state of Florida. So- that just kind of says something bad about psychology, right? <laughs> You're in not Florida. a real doctor. <laughs> in Florida, I, mean, I will, I will, I will consent to that. Uh, okay. So here's the problem that you've introduced into this, Rob. Yeah. Every Correct. time, every time from here on out that you say. Uh, doctor Overlaid, we're gonna have to know which <laughs> Doctor Overlaid. <laughs> Well, uh, from this uh, point forward, uh, it will be noted that uh, Fuzzy Hamster Overlaid's license was suspended indefinitely. And soon after, Florida passed more stringent licensing regulations, which uh, many were suggested by Dr. Overlaid himself, not the hamster. Okay, thank you. I was about okay. to say which doctor. So Overlaid. how did you find out? Did they, like, order a hamster-sized office? <laughs> I, I want to picture that in my Wait head. Wait a second. Something isn't quite right. We got this requisition Dude, form. Just, is it's one of those little extensions for the hamster kit, right? Where you just screw yeah. it on and boom. We got this requisition form from Dr. F.H. Overlaid, and it just says 50 tons of pellets. And it's, what and kind it's, of pellets? What is he talking a, about here? It's a handprint of a, of a small rodent. What's going on here? So now we have also have like a Stuart Little situation. So we have Moby Dick oh, and Stuart Little. Dude, that's the sequel right there. That's good. Stuart Little growing up fighting Moby Dick. Oh no! Yeah, no, okay, no, that's I better. I want to see Stuart Little four. Let's do it. That's good. All right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Where were we? Someone get M Night Shyamalan on the phone. No. Yeah. No. God. So what, yeah, and aside from uh, reading some information, some cases uh, from Project Blue Book and a, a report from Donald Kehoe, he didn't have a lot of experience with UFOs, and according to Two short chapters that he wrote in the follow-up book to the Gulf Breeze sightings. Uh, It's called UFO Abductions in Gulf Breeze. He was very skeptical of the phenomenon. He did not believe in alien abductions. Hmm. My man. (laughs) (laughs) Jason Jason appreciates that. Yes, he does. I'm I'm, I'm sure. What gave it away? Your joy, your joy just totally gave it away. Unbridled enthusiasm. I could feel like the brightness of your joy coming through <laughs> my headphones right now. It cured any illness that it came in contact with. Wait, um, wait, nope. Voice still screwed up. Yep, yep, Liar. still bad. Um, so let me ask you, Rob, because I remember starting the first book that I then did not complete um, for many reasons. And I remember that Bud Hopkins wrote that intro, right, to the first book? Isn't mm-hmm. that correct? Yes. Did he have any part in this whole, like, hey, let's see, because that was his jam, was like, hey, let's get you to a psychiatrist and let's get some hypnosis going. I'm Bud Hopkins. Like, <laughs> did, did he have any <laughs> part in intro, this? Huh? 
the only part that he had in this was he believed when he came to town like months before Ed's final encounter, he believed that there may be more experiences in Ed's life, that there may be an abduction narrative. And he encouraged Ed to think of memories that were kind of out of place. And we're going to touch on those when we um, get into the hypnosis sessions. But beside that, Bud Hopkins does not play a role in this story at all. Okay, all right. And, I mean, it should be noted and said, I have nothing but respect for Bud Hopkins. I really do. I think he's one of the more credible ufologists in the world, but or or in the world at the time. But, anyway, I just, I just wanted to clarify that. Yep. And uh, leading up to the hypnosis sessions, Ed was subjected to a battery of psychological tests, including a Rorschach test, a thematic apperception test. I have no idea what that is and what most of these are. The Wexler Adult Intelligence Scale and something called the Draw what? a Person Test. I, I, I don't know <laughs> what that test is. What the I don't heck? even know what that last one is. That's pretty wild. That's great. That's expensive. <laughs> the draw a person test. Yes, that's the way. The, uh-huh. uh, this is from Dr. Overlaid himself, not the hamster. Um, <laughs> yes, good. Um, uh, although you, I, I did, really wish that his hamster had written portions of this book. That would have been amazing. Oh, it would have been so good. Yeah. Did you say that there was a Rorschach test that was administered? Yes, there is was. Is that right? What did he see? Does it say? He, no, he didn't go Dang. into anything. The only stuff that <laughs> Ed goes, <laughs> yeah, the only stuff that he goes into is just the uh, hypnosis sessions, which are kind of like hypnosis sessions in most books, where it's like you know dialogue just plucked out of it. Yeah, yeah, okay, yep. all right. These tests were administered over the course of six hours and multiple sessions. And after all of them were administered, Dr. Overlaid stated, quote, Ed was emotionally and mentally stable and no. a somewhat no. conventional <laughs> and non-assertive man. I disagree. I disagree completely with the way that he has presented himself in his book, but we will cover that at the end. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah, hey, we'll man, talk we about that We all have later. extremes. We get pushed places. I guess yeah. that's true. He went on to say that he was the perfect balance between introvert and extrovert, and no mental aberrations Here's were the detected. Thing. Here's what you're describing, a, ra- a well-rounded person. And I cannot yes. believe that that's what Ed Walters was. <laughs> I know. I, I Sam, I know. I, I, I've read this book. I've read these books. You read a lot of these books. Did you read all three of them? I, I own all three of them. I couldn't do the third one. I my mind I own all three of them, so that's a no. <laughs> I don't blame I, you. I, yeah, once uh, once you get to the third one, which he co-wrote with Dr. Bruce Maccabee. I was really you hoping his banner. Tap out. You you feel like a wrestler in a submission and all you want to do is tap out. Except the pain that you're feeling is real. <laughs> alright, alright. Oh, because wrestling is fake. What? I get it. What do you mean? <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> like Santa? All right, what? go ahead. <laughs> all right, all right. And before Ed underwent the hypnosis session, he's he was actually subjected to a short, like, 45-minute hypnosis session to gauge 
how easy it would be for him to enter a, a trance like state and to establish the methods of recall that would be used. Often Ed's hypnosis sessions would get really intense and he would be asked to view the experiences as if he was in an empty movie theater and was viewing them on a screen. Hmm. And when the memories were particularly harder to handle, he was instructed to sit in the projection booth so he could pause or even shut off the memories when he needed to. That's really interesting. That kind of reminds me of like a mind castle idea of like creating a physical space through which to experience like your memory and stuff like that. It's a really, really interesting um, concept, I guess. Yeah. And then there was also a set of finger motions established to determine how Ed would want to answer a question when it was posed to him. If he raised his index finger, it meant yes. If he raised his thumb, it meant no, which is very strange. It should be the other way around. Yeah. And if he raised his middle finger, it meant that he didn't <laughs> want to answer the question. What's funny about this, unbeknownst to anybody else, is that the moment that you said used a set of finger motions, Jason flipped me off. (laughs) So that means he doesn't want to answer this question. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And during uh, during the hypnosis sessions, this well, this particular session, Dr. Overlaid stated that Ed's body memory movements differed from the normal in two different ways. They were incredibly intense, which is something that seems to happen with abductees. Um, if you've seen or at least heard some, you know, tapes like Barney Hills, which is uh, chilling, terrifying. Yeah. Yes, that's that's kind of the norm. And the movements were sustained and repetitive, which mm. apparently is not normal during these kind of sessions. During this short session. And the way that Ed was reacting, it led Dr. Overlaid to believe that Ed had spontaneously regressed while they were doing this. Like, his mind just, like, went to uh, an experience, and I believe it was the May 1st experience. He would go on to postpone the sessions in order to teach Ed techniques that would lessen the intensity of his muscle movements. But he gave Ed an hour-long tape of a guided hypnosis session that was kind of designed to teach him these techniques but realistically it was just you know designed to regress him and from there ed was kind of able to just you know self-hypnotize himself and and do whatever the hell he wanted perfect what's what's the point of that i i i better night's rest i don't know what did you say better night's rest meditation okay all right okay i mean they're close right yeah I i guess i don't know I actually don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a really bad thing. I don't think hypnotism and meditation are very close. I don't know. Like Deeper as philosophical brothers. Um, huh. It's it's just it's a it's a bummer that you're really open to suggestion during hypnosis too, though. Mm. Yeah. So well, we've got uh, something that'll help here. He was by himself when he used this tape for the most part. Okay. Really? So he could yes. have just said anything. Yeah. Okay. I have one last stupid question. Yep. If he hypnotizes himself and he's how all alone, how does he get out of it? Does he just... Well, the, the tape would lead him out, so... Oh, okay. All right, that makes sense. It was an hour-long tape, and it was, you know, just guiding him through these steps, but it would also bring him out at the end of it. Okay. That sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. It's like a blast. Let's sure, try it. Sure. I'm sure we can find something. One time my mom gave me hypnotist tapes to get me to stop smoking. It didn't work. Didn't work. Only the unrelenting fear of death could do that. <laughs> were you were oh, you yeah. able to enter a trance? No. No, I was not. <laughs> It was a very strange, he just kept saying, he just, all I remember was just like, look at the color red. Every time you see the color red, that's going to remind you not to smoke. And then I would like go into the world and I'd see like something red and be like, huh, I should have a cigarette. It just, (laughs) it was the exact opposite of what was supposed to happen. You didn't have the office space kind of experience? No, no, I did not. Damn. Like, I want to know if that's real. If I can go and be hypnotized to actually go to work and enjoy my job. I don't think that's possible. (laughs) No. Even if you like your job, I don't think... No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) So that same night after the hypnosis session, Ed decided to try out the tape. Ed... That real go-getter, he's he's going after it. And at the dinner table, Francis was explaining to uh, his children, Laura and Danny, what Ed was going to be doing, and they kind of joked about hijacking the session. We're going to convince Ed to up their allowance to $50 a week and to purchase Laura a new stereo. And wow. Francis, yeah, Francis put a quash to that really quickly. <laughs> Good to know your kids only love you for your money. <laughs> yes. Well... Jason's like, huh. (laughs) Ed followed the steps on the tape, and he was being led deeper and deeper into a trance. He could feel repressed memories trying to get out. While this first session with the tape produced no new memories, when he awoke, he could see the face of a being above him that had large almond-shaped black eyes. Has he read Communion? Um, Is that what he was seeing? I'm not going to dismiss that and say that he hasn't read well, Communion. There's a very Communion-ish vibe to this. Does Does he describe like the color of the skin of the being? Or no, no. no. All, okay. All he says was he saw this face floating above him that had black almond-shaped eyes. Hmm. Uh, The image was only there for a few seconds, but this session unleashed a mini storm of poltergeist activity in the house. That tracks. (laughs) Does it? Yeah. Is that commonplace? Yeah, poltergeist activity is all, it's all just psychic energy. No, 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 no. It's all psychic energy. I mean, if you look at the majority of poltergeist cases, they occur... When especially young women, but also sometimes young men, uh, enter into puberty in their lives. And it, it it's just that because you're going under so much psychological torment of growing and developing that your head just like opens up a faucet and some of that energy just comes out and then it makes eggs levitate and transubstantiate and stuff like that. Okay, no, it doesn't. No, it does. No. <laughs> what? It doesn't. What are you trying to say? You can't just will things to happen. Or subconsciously but, affect but things like that. But I willed this podcast to happen, and it's <laughs> happening. Boom. Right, right. But you physically did things to make that occur as well. Checkmate did I really? <laughs> or did I do it all with my mind? I mean, your mind told you how to operate everything, so yes... 
Yes, so your point is not valid, Jason. I'm sorry. You're physically touching things. (laughs) You're physically moving it. No, you don't know that. That is true. You don't know that. We we are not doing a video Skype call. All right, continue. (laughs) Whatever. Who cares? We're all going to (laughs) die. Exactly. We're all simulation. It doesn't matter. Moments before Ed came out of hypnosis... The phone rang, and Danny, who was sitting at the kitchen table, got up to answer it. He was the only one in the room at the time, and his school books were scattered all on the kitchen table. And when he hung up the phone and turned around, the the books were neatly stacked. Interesting. <laughs> yes. And moments after that, everyone in the house heard the bathroom door slam and the distinct sound of running water. When they broke through the door, they found that no one was in there, and the hot water faucet was turned on full blast. Hmm. How do you explain that, Jason? Was the window open? <laughs> no, it was <laughs> How not. How old's the house? Um, it's fairly new. How many other people saw it? There were three people in total that saw it. Ed was just coming out of the room. He heard the well, yeah, sound, like, but he didn't. Not directly connected to Ed. No one. Okay. It's Ed's house. Yeah, exactly. All right. <laughs> Ed felt like he was going to get the answers that he needed if he just went through this hypnosis session again. Ed, pushy freaking guy, wants to do it again. <laughs> the family decides to join him at this point. They're surrounding him as he's laying on their bed. Francis presses play on the tape. And very quickly, he found himself transported back to May 1st, 1988, and his final encounter with the beings. He could hear the sound of the tide pushing against the shore and the rustling of bushes nearby. Soon, he was surrounded by a number of short beings with almond-shaped eyes wearing boxy metallic armor. And all of these creatures carried a wand. That is totally, that is totally communion. That's 100% communion. Like, through and through. The boxy armor, kind of, but like... The wands? Yeah. Yeah, no, the wands, definitely. The There was that one being that rushed Whitley Strieber in one of mm-hmm. his experiences wearing some type of, like, chest armor with, like, a circle insignia on it. I remember, I seem to remember, and I could be wrong, it's been a minute, but I seem to remember very specifically Strieber saying something about armor that that was like square or boxy or something like that. Yeah, there was that, and then during his final experience, there was a being that was standing next to his bed, and it was wearing a double-breasted suit, but it was... Not a double-breasted suit. It was made out of cardboard, and it looked really that's boxy. Right. Yes, yeah. yeah, I think that's exactly what I'm thinking, actually. So, I think the bigger question is, does this new testimony back up Schreiber, or does it now make his fall short? Well, that's I all a matter of perspective. Yeah. I don't yeah. think it affects Whitley's testimony i don't think it affects his experiences however i think whitley's experiences are an influence for ed here and Mm -hmm. i don't i don't want to get too deep into the theories yet but uh, i i think that's what it's going to come to okay okay 
but quickly two of the beings rushed him and uh, began to push him down to the ground. One was holding onto his neck Bullies. while the other was pushing <laughs> against his shoulder. They are Captain Ahab finally getting the whale. You would do the same thing. He described the <laughs> movements of these beings like that of jumping spiders. And a group <sighs> of 20 of them lifted him up and began to carry him toward a lighted craft. Okay. That kind of tracks as well with Strieber. I Strieber's my man, so I'm just going to keep cuz yeah. like he was he specifically says at one point that he is being carried out and he's not sure, he can't tell because he's like frozen. He can't tell if he was floating or if he was being physically or physically carried as well. Right. Mm. In this case, Ed's pretty sure that they're carrying him themselves all 20 okay. of them <laughs> big guy and yet our man ed walters was able to struggle <laughs> the beings dropped him to the ground and scattered away the moment they realized that ed could move again and he struggled to his feet and he tried to grab one of the beings he was a little too slow they're a little too fast for ed and at that point a telepathic message entered his head and said stop ziha stop you are not that strong. Really not. You can't catch me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You Too are fast. not that strong. Uh, we know. We know your passion. What does that even mean? <laughs> we know your passion? <laughs> He's a very passionate individual about things. Um, like not getting abducted? <laughs> yeah, he's very passionate about that. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I'm passionate in the opposite direction. Next, next time I'm in an interview, and they're like, "What are you passionate about?" <laughs> well, not being abducted by by spider aliens, spider yes. jumping spider. You, you uh, know about them. The, the beings <laughs> quickly formed a circle around Ed, and at that point, he lunged for one of them. And as he did, he was hit in the shoulder by one of the wands. A white flash flooded his vision, and it rendered him immobile again. It was not to last, though. As soon he found that he could move again, after biting down on his tongue so hard that it started to bleed. Uh, oh, I have sympathy pains. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, I can He's... feel it. <laughs> uh, uh, are you okay, Sam? You no. okay? No, go ahead. Come out of it, Sam! You know my passion. <laughs> Dude, it's intense. It's intense for uh, uh, Whitley Strieber. Not for Ed Walters. No. But for Whitley Strieber. <laughs> All right. He said he could feel an electric-like shock run down his legs, and then he could move again. The beings quickly dropped him, and as he fell, he, he, he fell kind of into a bush, and he was able to grab one of them around the neck. This lone being struggled as Ed drew it back further into the bushes. It tried again and again to hit him with the wand, but failed to make contact. With the being finally subdued, his vision suddenly became blurry, and he could see his daughter Laura crying out for him. Now, having reached this portion of the hypnosis, Frances did all she could to fast-forward through the tape to get to the end. The family was shocked and terrified by what they were hearing, and Laura in particular was taking it the hardest. It took some time to calm the family down, but guess what? 
Ed wanted to go back in. He wanted to explore these memories even further. Uh. What a brave, brave man. <laughs> <laughs> I say that with so much sarcasm that I could, I, you could just, like, put it on a freaking piece of bread with a knife and, like, cut some butter. Oh, my God. Yeah. I can tell your passion. You... <laughs> For sarcasm. <laughs> For sarcasm and, and butter. <laughs> buttered bread. You, yeah. <laughs> yes, you know my passion. <laughs> oh, God. So, yeah, okay. Can we just take a moment to appreciate the courage of this man? Oh, yeah. I just, I, I feel well, that we need to. <laughs> I want to treat this narrative at least for this part of the the episode, as though it is true, right? And, like, if Mm -hmm. this is true, then, yeah, that is courageous. I mean, so often with, um, I mean, like we kind of alluded to earlier, like with uh, Barney Hill, I mean, you listen to this guy being regressed, and regardless of if you think it actually happened or what, like, you hear him screaming for his life, and it's like, this is probably one of the more traumatic things you could experience and not even to mention that let's say that what he's writing here is true and that that's what happened to him in in the regression not necessarily that it objectively happened right but because of the weird way that like hypnosis and and hypnotic regression can work it is essentially implanting this memory so that you react to it as real and it is then used to create who you are going on with the rest of your life. So, like, yes, Edward is is an interesting and strange individual, but if this is true that he even did say, okay, we're going to go back into it, it is kind of brave, yeah, in my opinion. I'm, I'm excited to see DiCaprio play him in a biopic. <laughs> It would be right. I mean, it's it. basically the Revenant right now. Yeah. What is it? I mean, <laughs> no, the it really is of, of focus yeah. and determination that he has right now. Yeah. Close enough. That's true. Mm. One time I went to see the Revenant and Jason was there. I was. It we was, didn't it sit was, next to each other. We sat like down the row from each other. That's, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was a good movie. You went it's with, a heavy movie. You went with a Tinder date. And Katie, to this day, talks about that person because she was like, that girl that Jason was with that time, when all of, like, because I don't know if you've seen The Revenant. At one point, he, like, cauterizes a gaping neck wound that he has. And it is just, ugh. And this girl apparently just sat there unblinking, unflinching. And my wife's like, she must be a psychopath. (laughs) Oh, my God. You were going to get murdered in your sleep. You were. No. (laughs) Anyway. Ed <laughs> convinced Francis to help him go back under hypnosis for a third time. Wow. And she uh, she ushered the kids out of the room, and it was only Ed and Francis. And this time he found himself not on the beach, but inside a room, hmm. a small room, that gave off the impression that it was dirty. Now... That is something that Whitley Strieber also mm-hmm. reported during his experience from December 26th, 1985. When he talks about it giving off an impression, like he's not looking around and seeing like stuff strewn out and stuff like that. He's he's literally just like in a room and he's like, oh, this feels dirty. Like this feels weird. Right? Yeah, exa- exactly. Because there's nothing else in the room. The only other features 
of the room is that it's really brightly lit, but he can't tell where the light source is coming from, which is also very common in these kind of stories. Mm-hmm. And there's a what he describes as a bowl-like device on the ceiling. Interesting. So if you've seen kind of like... Uh, have you ever seen those... Um, light fixtures that just kind of look like a glass bowl on the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's basically kind of what it was, but it was completely white. Hmm. All right. Shortly after arriving on the ship, a door opened behind him, and four beings walked into the room. Three were the short gray figures, while the fourth was very, very different. It wore a tightly pulled hood, revealing a head much larger than the other beings. Bits of white hair poked out from underneath that hood, and judging from the wrinkles on its skin, it appeared to be old. The voice Ed had been hearing throughout all of his experiences was coming from this being. It was a male voice, and it instructed him to calm down. Hmm. This being had another distinct feature that Bud Hopkins, the noted abduction researcher, has identified as being common among abductees, or at least that's what Ed tells us. The being only had four fingers, no thumb, and in between each finger was what Ed described as webbing. Mm. Ed was still upset at this point about these visions of Laura that he was seeing, but they reassured him that she was not on board the craft. She's fine. See? See? The being said. Okay, the older wait. being... What? Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Yeah. I need to defer to my, my biologic friend. Bio- <laughs> no, that's not right. That's not what I meant to say. My my friend with an interest in biology. Jason One Jason Moitoso. <laughs> when you have like a being with like webbed uh, digits... Doesn't that Well, indicate... wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Hold on one second. Okay. All right. Okay. When I say webbing between the fingers, I don't mean like an amphibian. I mean like uh, the way that Ed Like spider them. webs? Yes. They look like strings basically what? between the fingers. Yes. Oh my god. I will god. show you the picture later. No. Don't. What? I mean, that yes. could be from like a um, a mucous membrane as well. Oh, interesting. Think about it. Because when you separate with mucus, it could give the effect of looking like string. What would the, the weird, practical advantage of that be? Because, like, the advantage of, like, a so, full real webbing would be, like Rob was saying, like, amphibians and swimming and stuff. What would that... Yeah, well, fish have a slime layer, and it's essentially, like, um, their immune system in a lot of ways. It, it keeps parasites off of them, uh, and essentially, yeah, like, stops fungus from infecting their scales and stuff like that, too. So it could have some sort of similar effect to it. Okay. Roughly, but then again, that might have to make keep sense. It moist. Yeah. Uh being a dim lit room makes a little bit more sense keeping it that way, mm. but uh it I'm more stuck on the fact that it doesn't have opposable thumbs and it's using tools. Uh biologically speaking, one of his digits should have evolved to essentially work like a thumb. I mean, pandas, they're um their wrist bone is actually notched so that they can uh, wrap their paw in their wrist bone around bamboo to pull it down. Like they have, oh man, almost created like a claw, the inverse se, of yeah, a thumb to make a thumb so that they can still manipulate things. Wow! So it's interesting to hear that their 
yeah, like I said, using tools, but but not having what we assume would be like the the correct like physiology to do that. Yeah. Oh, okay, interesting. Well, okay. I I should clarify that. It's not this older being that uses the tools. It's never seen using tools. It's only the shorter gray beings, and those gotcha. beings so have get to a certain age, they them. just cut off the thumb. Well, yeah. maybe, okay. or maybe they're like different species or genus. Okay, or so they're living in a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, yeah, which is not uncommon no. to alien abduction narrative. That's weird, but okay. Yeah. All right. Sorry for the interruption. No, that's fine. The older being stood in front of Ed with its arms crossed. Occasionally, it would open and close its fingers as if it was nervous. Ed then heard another voice, a female voice, telling him to remember. In his mind, he was transported to his childhood bedroom when he was 11 years old, and he could see a bright light coming in through his bedroom window. The beings came for his brother that night. And at first, Ed was fearful, but ultimately ran toward the light to save his brother. It was then that these beings captured and paralyzed Ed with one of the wands and hooked him up to a special machine. Now, I'm going to interrupt the narrative here to ask you a question, Jason, seeing as how you're not big into the abduction stuff like we are and like but you've been i I want to through a lot of it but like yeah you've been you've been you've sat through this stuff over and over again so i want to i just want to ask you a question from your perspective how does the average alien abduction narrative sound like what 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 does it sound like well I mean, like how plausible it sounds, or no, 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 no. Like, like what, what the is general schematic of of mm. how does it occurs. how does it normally go down most of the time? Like, uh, it's it's usually involving some sort of small being, and mm-hmm. for some reason, uh, like the abduction instance takes place in like it, it feels like almost its own reality where. Like, you don't hear stories of a, a third-party witness seeing a, a blast of light coming through someone else's house or anything like that. Uh, it seems like it's it's very isolated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and generally, <sighs> some sort of light and some sort of ob- observation or uh, some sort of, of testing room of some sort. Mm-hmm. So what do the beings generally do to an abductee? Well, <laughs> well, it's just like, you know, nice in generally, time, generally, what do they do to an abductee? Uh, it's usually poke and prod and yep. also has someone giving them reassurance that X is going to be okay. X being themselves, a family member, this experience, uh, essentially a, a reassuring, calming voice. Mm-hmm. So and multiple types yeah, of aliens. It's it's normally mm-hmm. a, like a like a medical procedure is performed on them, right? In Ed Walter's experiences, they do not play out like that. There mm. is no, with the exception of one experience, and he doesn't totally explore it. There are what? no medical. Ex- there are no sound medical. Like our head. <laughs> no, there are no medical examinations that take place to Ed. And what I am going to describe for you now is how these experiences go down for Ed pretty much every time. Ed is led into a room. 
Sometimes he can see a table that is upright at a 45-degree angle. He is placed against it, paralyzed, and a clamp-like object is placed on his head. The object has four cups on it, one at the back of his head, one touching his forehead, and the other two touch his temples. Next, a group of four-foot-tall gray beings walk into the room or are already standing there, holding smaller, undeveloped, two-foot-tall gray beings. Wait, what do you mean by undeveloped? Yeah, yeah, wait, what does undeveloped mean? Is it a baby? (laughs) Yes, basically, yes. Whoa. It's it's like, it's, uh, it, it, I I don't want to say it looks sickly, but it just looks like it was born recently. Huh. Interesting. The main alien in charge calls these beings, these undeveloped beings, news, spelled N-E-W-S. And each of them is hooked up to a similar clamp-like device. Ed then begins to relive memories from his life that produce different emotions in him. When this is happening, the top of the clamp-like device, which is kind of T-shaped, lights up a red color. Usually, Ed relives these memories five or six times as each subsequent being is hooked up and disconnected from the headgear. And now, when I say each one, there's generally about six of them that get hooked up to this machine. And that's how these experiences play out for Ed. There are no real medical examinations. It doesn't fit into the normal narrative of an abduction account. That's... Kind of to make yet another literary reference. It kind of reminds me of like The Giver, you know, mm-hmm. where they like nobody can think and or nobody can feel because they can't remember, and that's how like feelings happen and all of that. And it's like because because the underlying assumption in any abduction narrative, whether it's Ed Walters, Whitley Strieber, or anybody else, is that for some reason there is something that the aliens want slash need that cannot be obtained without partnering with humans. And usually that partnership is a... a uh, involuntary? Un- yeah, yeah, involuntary, mm-hmm. unwilling. And so typically you get, like, the ideas of, especially with the probing, you get the ideas of, like, oh, well, they're trying to determine our physical state, either because A, you've got a few different options. A, they want to learn more about us in general. B, they're doing something to the environment, to the atmosphere, whatever. They're doing something and they want to see if that's changing our physiology. Or C, the, the more ancient astronaut kind of theory, they created us and they kind of just want to check up on how we're doing and how we're progressing. And so it's really interesting then that they aren't medically concerned but rather it seems like emotionally concerned um so the news the new are those the one those are the ones that are being clamped up and like being transferred or being going through that or is it the older um grays that are are hooking up to ed it's the news okay they're hooked up to the same headgear and it appears to be kind of vital to their development in in some kind of way. Yeah, that is so interesting. Yeah, and um, we're going to touch on, like, the types of memories that they make him experience, but 
Ed emerged from this hypnosis session uh, just as five beings were beginning to approach him. When he told Dr. Overlaid this information, he was just completely stunned that he could just regress like that. And he basically told Ed to stop doing the self-hypnosis, you know. <laughs> it's not safe for him. You're gonna hurt yourself. Uh, through the course of three sessions with Dr. Overlaid, they discovered that Ed has been abducted approximately once every eight years from the ages of 17 to 41. And back when Bud Hopkins rolled into town earlier in the story, he, like I said, he believed that there were more, there was more to Ed's story and that there may be an abduction narrative in there, which we, we now have established. And he urged Ed to explore these memories that may seem off in some way. And Ed was able to pinpoint three of them. It's those memories that became the focal point of these hypnosis sessions. The first was at the age of 17 and involved this strange-looking black dog. Here we go, back with the dogs again. Ed was running an errand for his mother and noticed this strange dog following him. It terrified him so much that he ended up crashing his bike into a ditch. And after pulling it out... He raced to the store and just raced back as quickly as he could. All the while, this black dog just kept pace with him. And uh, even when he was in the store, it just sat outside and stared at the door waiting for him to come out. From inside his house, when he finally made it home, he could see the dog sitting on the porch. But its head was twisted backward and it was looking at Ed in a very unnatural way. That's a skinwalker. I've I've heard my fair share of skinwalker stories and that's a skinwalker. Most definitely, man. I I'm picking up on those vibes. I don't like them. I don't like them either. <laughs> Later that night, Ed recalled seeing a bald-headed man with big eyes at the foot of his bed. This is the only time and only experience that Ed can recall having any kind of medical procedure done to him and when he was exploring these memories, he, he actually didn't want to explore them. He gave Doc the thumbs up. He answered no to most inquiries about this experience and threw up that middle finger a few times, too. All he could remember, or more accurately, all he would remember, was that there was some type of device attached to his genitals. Typical. Of course. Of yeah. course. There it is. There's that disgusting anti-gray stereotype coming out again. All they want is the D. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All they want is that reproductive material, and it's, um, yeah. It's, it's 2019, cool. I feel like there's easier ways to get it. <laughs> there's better ways to get it, that's for sure. You know, there there is, perhaps they should take lessons from the the doctors and clinics that we have here on Earth. Like, do your homework, aliens. Come I'm on. tired of this crap. Laziness. In order to avoid this memory, he jumped to the May 1st, 1988 experience, which we've covered. The second memory is at the age of 25, and it occurred when he was leaving a job site late one night. This was just before he moved his family to Costa Rica to set up his coffee plantation or to establish a drug trade we don't really know but i, mean, I think we know is a drug right true true 
<laughs> yeah, you've got a point. Maybe if I drank coffee, I would understand that, but I don't. So, Are you, Are you an, an alien? alien? <laughs> nice. <laughs> Solid. <laughs> that was not the planned. Hard questions. <laughs> Dang. You no, know, uh, I plead the fifth on that one. Okay. <laughs> That's a yes. What? <laughs> You can speculate all you want. doesn't mean that I'm an alien, but... It was past 11 p.m. that night, and in his rearview mirror, he could see that there was a darkness following his car that was somehow darker than the night sky. His car soon stalled out, and after exiting the vehicle, he believed that a motorcycle was coming straight for him. But all he could see was actually just a light. And as the light approached, it flew directly over the car. He got back into it, and it was somehow able to start again. And uh, he just took off like a bat out of hell, like he's meatloaf. <laughs> Two out of three ain't bad. The UFO pursues him. The car is suddenly flooded by a blinding white light. And he awakes in the car six hours later with no memory of how he got to where he was. Through hypnosis, Ed finds himself on board the craft, and the moment he arrives, he can hear children crying out. Mm. He exits the room that he's in, and he pulls them out from a nearby adjacent room, and he tries to lead them out of the ship. When they pass by a certain wall, it opened up, and three enormous lizards similar to Komodo dragons, but somehow bigger. Um, they Whoa. gave chase. Ed attempts to defend the children from these lizards, and as they begin to bear down on them, they are frozen by a blue beam of light, similar to the one that Ed had been hit with in his ex first experience, and uh, that one encounter when they tricked him to go outside and they got his like right leg. Mm. Uh, the beings claim that uh, this is merely a distraction, and they proceeded to hook him up to the uh, device that stole his memories. Now, okay, so a few questions on that one. So mm -hmm. he has the memory of being chased by something in, in his car. He's driving. Yep. Something right. passes directly over to the car. He gets back in. So when it says that he remembers... Uh, the blinding light, and then he remembers waking in his car six hours later. Is this mm -hmm. something that he had conscience, consciously remembered before the hypnosis? Yes. Okay. And so then during the hypnosis itself, that's when he goes in. It's not that he's like recovering yeah. the first memory and then inceptioning into yeah. the second memory. Yeah. Sorry, I should have made note of that. Um, I, I didn't want to go into like every single one of these no um, for sure like memory this these hypnosis memories because they're all basically the same yeah um um the so kids, like the, the children yeah. are they his children um no wait they are not he, he, five, right yeah oh okay right? he, yeah yeah he doesn't recognize the children at all okay all right interesting his third out of place memory is at age 33 and took place in Corpus Christi, Texas, shortly after moving back from Costa Rica. He had taken off on a fishing trip by himself, and as he was floating down a river, he doesn't specify which one, which seems like a detail that could be easily, <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> given up. Uh, his canoe somehow runs aground in the middle of the lake on some unseen object. He would black out shortly after that. When he awoke, he found that his boat was run aground on a nearby beach, which is kind of impossible because his boat would just have to make like a 90 degree turn in order yeah. to do it. He believed that he was afflicted by heat stroke. Hmm. So, and again, the hypnosis session yielded another experience of being hooked up to this strange machine. Hmm. Now, each of the memories explored under hypnosis would yield stories of the news, these N-E-W-S weird-ass undeveloped <laughs> being, and Ed's role in, in these young beings' lives. Often the memories Ed would relive would bring him joy, love, anger, and pain. He recalled playing with his kids and making love to Francis on a hillside in Costa Rica. Now, they made him recall this memory more than once. <sighs> Those darn news. Yeah. Pervs. That's terrible. There was a memory of a special type of hot water pump that he built that would transport this water uphill without the use of a motorized pump. It, it was actually gravity fed somehow. Hmm. I forget how he explained it, but he explained it in the book. If if you really if you really want to know, <laughs> I will encourage you find yourself a used copy of UFO abductions in Gulf Breeze. It's a riveting read if you don't want to lose your mind. <laughs> If you do want to lose your mind. No, no, your mind will be fully intact because you don't buy this crap for one second, but that's okay. He recalled being at a younger time, and he was uh, hanging out with friends in an abandoned apartment complex that was patrolled by Navy guards nearby where he lived in Jacksonville. He would play jokes on his friends in this uh, apartment. They actually built a room... That was like black. They put black on the walls so light couldn't be seen mm. uh, coming from inside the room. There were also these strange past life memories that involved an African American man, a half Native American man and child, as well as memories of a drug cartel from Nicaragua. Hmm. Interesting. That's yes. what I see. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. One memory that Ed dwells on the most, this is one of the, I'm still scratching my head about this memory, I don't understand why it's so big for Ed, but <laughs> this one memory was from a time when he was 12 years old, and he was disqualified from the science fair. Oh. He had built a telescope made out of cardboard and mirrors, and he was damn proud of what he made. He was disqualified by the judges who claimed that it had been built by an adult. Hmm. So, these aliens, these these really powerful memories of making love to your wife on the hills of Costa Rica and playing with your kids and, and, and being proud of this hot water pump that you somehow managed to build. And there's this one random memory of well, the time you were disqualified at the science fair. Well, I mean, to be fair, it sounds like... It sounds like that memory out of all of them 
has probably the most specific and unique emotion attached to it, I think. Like, if you look at the other ones, you're playing with your kids. That's joy. You're, you know, doing it with your wife. That's all sorts of, you know, stuff. You're uh, feeling nostalgic for your childhood memories of playing jokes with friends. The past life memories are a little weird. But this, what he's feeling here at the science fair, is a complex emotion he's feeling a mixture of pride as well as a mixture of of indignation and of disappointment mixed with anger like of all of the memories i would say that's probably the one that if we're correct in assuming that this is like a giver scenario where where the one transfers life experience and and fleshes out the uh, experience of the others i would say that that's probably kind of a hard emotion to bottle up and and capture as it were if i wanted to take this seriously i would agree with you <laughs> well you completely you got but it. you have a valid point yes you totally have a valid point it is a complex emotion the main emotion that he feels from that experience is pride because he knows that he was not wrong and mm-hmm. uh he has pride for that telescope that he built so I could definitely see that perspective. However, this is Ed Walters. Yeah. And I know the story that we're in right now. <laughs> That's but I, I will give you that, yes. All right, all right. The uh, hypnosis sessions would yield other types of strange phenomenon around the Walters household as well. All members of the family, with the exception of Ed, which is very strange, claimed to see what they described as four strange fingers that would hang over the roof Uh. and they could be seen from the kitchen window and the living room window at times. No, wait, 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 wait. Ed didn't claim that he saw this, right? right? No. No. So... He did not claim to see the fingers. So, what does that... What can we infer from this? What we can infer from this is that Ed is trying to establish that... His family was experiencing things and that the four fingers, which would be associated with this older being, which uh, they Uh described as very pointed, which is what the fingers of the being look like, that this is, you know, something they wouldn't have known. False. What we can what we can (laughs) infer from this is that Ed Walters was on the roof with these weird made up fingers gently resting them over the edge of the roof. Yeah, why didn't they just go outside and take a look at it? Yeah. They did go outside and take a look at it and nothing was there. Yeah. Yeah. Classic. It was Ed. It was totally Ed. All right. (laughs) Okay. We'll go with that. They would all hear the sound of doors opening and closing too and Shortly after the family decided to escape this weirdness and media attention, and they decided to build a new house about two blocks away. It wasn't that far away. And in December of 1988, the the family moved into this new house. They changed their phone number, but that didn't seem to stop journalists and such from finding them. Journalists. Well, yes. that's why you got to keep all this stuff to yourself. Yeah, and not write three books about it? Exactly. Like, come on, Ed. <laughs> I don't well, believe this. To be this. fair, in 1988, he hadn't even published his first book. His first book didn't come out until 1990. His second book came out in 1994. And the third came out in 1997. That's a mighty so, long gap there, son. <laughs> now, we need to establish here that 
for the most part, maybe not locally, but nationally, Ed's identity was not something that was known. It was still hidden. Mm -hmm. He still tried to maintain as much anonymity as he could. But these TV programs would continue to contact him. Everyone from Oprah to Unsolved Mysteries would contact Ed and feature the Gulf Breeze sightings. In October of 1988, two months before they moved into their new home, the television documentary UFO Cover-Up Live! That's right, we're doing it live! Aired. This was a uh, kind of a variety UFO show. It was hosted by Mike Farrell. Do you know who Mike Farrell is? No. He was a character on MASH. Oh, He he played one of the characters on MASH. And this documentary, it was about two hours long. It featured a who's who of the UFO community at that time, including Bill Moore and Jamie Chandra. These are the individuals that brought forth the MJ-12 documents. Mm. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Jason Jason does (laughs) know what that means. (laughs) I think you need to do an episode on the MJ-12 documents. We'll probably do that not anytime yeah. soon to be sure yeah. um jason's uh major robert friend was on that program i know you needed a major friend there jason major friend jace thanks yep. <laughs> <laughs> all right continue <laughs> unfairly attacked yes i don't know where The show also featured Stanton T. Friedman and Jesse Marcel Jr., who brought forth the uh, story of Roswell, as well as Betty Cash and Vicki Landrum, who uh, were involved in one of the most dramatic Close Encounter of the Second Kind cases, which led to both Betty Cash and Vicki Landrum getting sick, experiencing symptoms that were described as being... As if they were exposed to radiation, which I know Jason just loves when it comes to UFOs. Now, toward the end of the program, they featured 100 residents of Gulf Breeze and some of the key players in the story up to that point, with the exception of Ed. Chief of Police Jerry Brown came out as a skeptic of the sightings, stating that there was a lot of air traffic around Gulf Breeze, He believed that the residents of the town were seeing something, but he didn't believe that they were UFOs. And to kind of reiterate this point, there were two or three Air Force bases in the area. There was Elgin Air Force Base, Eglin Air Force Base, which is really confusing because they basically sound the same. You had an airport in Pensacola. There is a naval station uh, nearby. So... There was a lot of air traffic. The residents of Gulf Breeze were used to this. Mm. So I get from his perspective, believing that they're just seeing planes, you know, a plane that they can't identify or, or something like that. Now, the Gulf Breeze Sentinel's editor, Dwayne Cook, came out on the show in full support of Ed, as did MUFON member Don Ware, who presented brief interviews with the original witnesses that came forward with their sightings from November 11th after the Sentinel published the first photos captured by Ed Walters. While Ed wasn't 
directly featured in the show, his photographs were all over it. And the show presented two individuals who examined the photos in detail. The first was Dr. Robert Nathan of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, who came out against the photographs, stating, quote, I'm not too comfortable with the Gulf Breeze photographs. I feel that many of these images are double exposure photographs. My man. <laughs> yes. NASA. <laughs> he added that the objects in the photos were not consistently focused, appearing sharp in some photographs and hazy in others, and that the object appeared to be lighted from an external light source. Dr. Nathan noted how in some photographs the object appeared to be cut off at the bottom as if the same double exposure was being used repeatedly. He closed by saying, quote, I've been chasing UFO sightings for over 30 years. I would have liked to have said differently, but I'm afraid the Gulf Breeze photographs just don't check out, mm. end quote. Dr. Bruce Maccabee, who you'll remember from these first two parts, is an optical physicist formerly employed by the United States Navy, and who has investigated UFO sightings for, I believe, at 30 years at that point. Mm. He came out in full support of the photographs, stating that they were genuine and that the object in the photographs was of extraterrestrial origin. Wow. <laughs> Uh, one of the great moments of this documentary, because I watched it the other day, and it's uh, it's a little rough, but it's you know it's fun. It's it's yeah. a fun watch. Mike Farrell kind of gave him this odd look, like really you coming out saying that in full? Okay, well because it was live, right? <laughs> yeah, it, exactly, exactly. That's the and danger of a live program. The media can't decide what they want to show. Yes. And what you find in Dr. Bruce Maccabee's work on the peripheral is that he has come out in many UFO sightings in favor of the extraterrestrial hypothesis. He has come out in favor of it in Ed's story, in Kenneth Arnold's story, and I believe in the sightings in 1952 that led to the Robertson panel. He's just all aliens all the time. So he's now, historically biased. <laughs> yes, he is. Okay. Now, when you say he's come out um, for the extraterrestrial hypothesis, when you say that, does that, by that, do you mean that he's come out saying that these are authentic photographs, which I know that that is what he's saying, or that specifically within the UFO framework itself that he supports the extraterrestrial hypothesis as opposed to different hypothesis like uh, uh that are out there like interdimensional and and mm m and m and m machines and and things like that um or does he just simply say yes these are real photographs he says that the photographs are authentic and that it is evidence of extraterrestrials of visiting okay. the earth yeah all right all right cool <laughs> Neat. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. McAvee. Now, before we moved on from the year 1988, we put it in, a, before we put it in our rear view mirror, and we, we never want to look at it again. Let's go. Let's do it. There are a few things I want to make mention of. The first is what Ed calls his 
in sleep you know memories mm. now oh i know in the last <laughs> part of the series you you will remember that he received a telepathic message from the aliens at one point and they said to him in sleep you know now we know from the follow-up book that what these memories that are they're referring to is that ed has this ability to be able to ask the aliens questions before he falls to sleep and he's able to wake up with the answers daddy i want to be an astronaut when i grow up you will be that sucks man that's just hypnagogia that's fine Ugh. leading up to ed's final encounter he put 16 questions towards the aliens I'm not going to run through all of them because they're just... Thank God. <laughs> it would just be freaking boring as all hell. That's um, the spirit. <laughs> but uh, to uh, describe to you how he's able to accomplish this, early on in his life, Ed has been able to fall asleep relatively quickly every night using what he calls the black cloud method. Essentially, Ed imagines a black cloud touching his toes and moving up his entire body. By the time the cloud reaches his head, Ed would be sound asleep. He later <laughs> learned that he could oh, ask a, a question before going to sleep and wake up with the answer using this black cloud method. He could use it to combat colds by thinking of the word healing. And he could also solve a problem that he was having if he just posed it to himself before he went to bed. So, yes, while we're not going to be going into these questions in depth, we will go over the insights that he was able to glean from these alien beings. Now, from March, yeah, March 31st to April 18th of 1988, he asked them 16 questions. He was able to learn that his first experience goes back to age 11, which we briefly touched on with his uh, self-hypnosis sessions, then that he played a big part in an alien-humid hybrid program. Right, that's, that's what nice. we're talking about. Yeah, that sounds right. Bin 10. Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Walter's Ed was one. responsible for providing emotions as a part of the development of this new species. He learned that 100 years of human life was equal to one year of alien life. Whoa. Wait, what does that, that mean? now he's sterile. It means that <laughs> for every... F for a human that experiences 100 years of life, it's like it's the equivalent of one year of alien life for these beings. So it's like reverse dog years rules, right? Yeah, yeah it's kind a really of. slow orbit. Yeah. I'm still kind of confused by that, but go. That's fine. Go ahead. Yeah, what, what it's do you mean? confusing How is that in the book. Is it, okay, so what I'm assuming does is he that mean it's a human's average lifespan? Okay, for us, a years. year is yeah one. Okay, one part of that. So then, these aliens live to every, be eight thousand. That's what one of my yes. assumptions is. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. Exactly. For every year, uh, yeah, every okay century they live is like one of our years. Then why on God's green earth do they need Edward Walters? They don't. Like, to, to implant memories and things, like... For this new species. 
Oh, it's, it's vital to species. their development. Okay. All right. Yes. Why do you need to make a new species if you're already interplanetary? Because you get uh, bored. Okay. But my my uh, my question would be, why don't you ask the aliens, Jason? Yeah, I am, Rob. Whoa, <laughs> not through. Listen, do you assume that the aliens are tapping into this? Wait, you no, really you. think I'm an alien yes. right now? Yes. You really think I'm an alien here? 110%. Okay, I, I you know, whatever. <laughs> he didn't deny He's not, it. He did he, not deny He didn't it. come here to fight with you about that. <laughs> Other things he wants to fight with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Wow. Thank God this is the last part of this Oh, I'm having so much fun. Are you? What? Yes. Wow. What? Dang. Uh, he looks like he means it. What? <laughs> that he's having fun. Oh, are you? I'm smiling. He is smiling. Okay. All right. So there's that. There we go. Yeah. Well, that's good. Anyway. <laughs> All right. He was able to glean insight into the hierarchy of the beings as well, and... The older being with the white hair is known as the quote-unquote speaker. And when Ed hears that male voice, it is this individual that is speaking to him. The beings wearing the boxy metallic armor are a synthetic type of life form designed to perform certain tasks. The aliens called these synthetic biological units. Wow. That's that's <laughs> Whitley Strieber as well. Um, all so, over it. Mm-hmm. Hold on, I'm still confused. Why do they need a hybrid if they already have these AI, essentially? Because they're aliens. They can do what they want. I mean, all right. Let them do it. You don't want to give everything that you've created over to a computer. You want to give it to your son, even if your son is part you and part some other species. Some weird stuff there, Sam. Yeah, I didn't. I kind of <laughs> lost the thread on it. Okay. All right. We're making centaurs over here. <laughs> oh, I hope so. Oh, God. It's terrifying. <laughs> Alien centaur. How are they going to wear pants? Yeah. How? <laughs> if a centaur wore pants. Is it is it like the the, the bottom half? Or is it this. just like... Oh, God. All four legs get pants? <laughs> Kill me. It's so confusing. All right. All right. All right. I'm reining this in. <laughs> oh, Take me wow. home, country road. Uh... The second thing I want to touch on here is that in November of 1988, Ed and Francis took a trip to New York City to get away from all the publicity that Gulf Breeze had been receiving. And during this trip, a man by the name of Manuel Fernandez, a New York photographer, was contacted by an individual calling himself Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones wanted Manuel to create a hoaxed photo of the Gulf Breeze UFO over the Sears Tower. The photo was sent to Jim Mosley, who was the publisher of a UFO magazine called Saucer Smear. I have to stop. Which, you know, I have to stop yeah. everything right now. Jim Mosley. Yeah. Earlier today, this is so off topic, and I'm sorry for derailing again. Earlier today, I was at work, and I saw a guy who looked extremely familiar and i was like 
what the heck? And so I went up to him and I was like, hi, like, what can we help you with? And he said, nothing. I just need Jason. and I work at the Apple store. So I said, nothing. Mm-hmm. I just need to get my like phone fixed or something like that. I said, Oh, okay. What's your name? Assuming that when he told me his name, it would like click. I'd be like, Oh, I know you. You're from whatever. And his name was Jim Mosley. What the hell is going, is going on here? On? What is going on? We're being watched. I can't. Oh no. We're being watched. No. We need to we need to burn this. Damn it. Burn it down. We I'm going to do You keep talking. This I'm going to do some research down. on this guy. <laughs> this is um, wild. Jim, uh, it should be noted Jim Mosley passed away years ago. Okay. So well, it's not this Jim Mosley. Wait, 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 wait. It could be Sam look up a picture of him. I'm gonna <laughs> That's true. We could be moving from an alien story to a ghost story with little little efforts. Oh. What What have I done? Anyway, I apologize. That's just, that is bizarre to me. That is, yeah, that is very weird. But yes, he he had a UFO magazine called Saucer Smear that basically poked fun at UFO researchers and and stuff. I mean, Jim Mosley was a semi-serious researcher. I don't know. So wait, is it still in publication? Huh? (laughs) Is it still in publication? Has he... Giving the reins over to someone else? This sounds yes, interesting. as far as I know, Saucer Smear is still run by somebody else. What? Lovely. I can't remember their name, but How interesting. somebody else does run it. Nice. So, yes. Sam, did you talk to our No, I found friend? a picture of Jim Mosley. It could not have been the same person. Okay, darn. <laughs> yeah, no. There goes my so it's just, it's just a coincidence, and we're going to move on. <laughs> we're not going to get abducted in our sleep. We're gonna be fine. All right. Okay. All right. I mean, I can. Li- I can use a little drama in my life. <laughs> it's boring. Do you really? Do you want that drama, Jason? Do you really want that drama right now? Jason would love Come to be me. abducted by aliens. <laughs> okay, let's Jason go. Walters. Let's go. <laughs> Jim contacted Ed about these photos and. Everybody was all in an uproar. Uh, Manuel eventually admitted to the hoax and just blamed it on this Mr. Jones guy. I don't think Mr. Jones exists, but, Mm. you know, whatever. But from this moment on, the sightings in Gulf Breeze would take on a life of their own, and Ed's story would begin to kind of fall apart a little bit. Many had dismissed the flap in Gulf Breeze by the end of 1988, and... We'll be getting into the findings of groups like QFOs and other investigators at the end, but uh, Gulf Breeze residents continue to report their sightings to MUFON as well as to the Gulf Breeze Sentinel. The nature of the UFO itself would change, and it transformed from a blue-gray muffin-like object that Ed had been capturing on film into a red or white light that would fly in a zigzag-type pattern. At times, portholes could be seen at the bottom of this object, and Ed actually drew this object at one point because, you know, it's Ed Walters. He can see these things better than anybody else can, but it essentially looked like a disc-shaped object with six holes toward the bottom and then a red light in the middle. In 1989... Gulf Breeze residents would report what they called skyquakes that would be followed by the discovery of grass circles in random fields. 
These areas of depressed grass took the form of these perfect circles ranging from 10 to 14 feet wide. Witnesses described the skyquakes as large booms that would rattle houses and shake the ground. Each time, the town would contact the National Weather Service, but no tremors were ever detected. Mm. They eventually chalked the skyquakes up to sonic booms created by military aircraft in the area, Sounds which would right. make sense. <laughs> yeah, which would make sense, like I said, considering how many Air Force bases in an airport we have in this area. So, A parking area near the Pensacola Bay Bridge became the popular hangout spot. They were done with Shoreline Park. Screw that place. We got something better. By 1990, these UFOs had become so predictable that they earned the nickname the 9 o'clock UFO. This mm. UFO would come out well, every night between good. the hour. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it would come out every night between the hours of 9 and 10, and everybody saw this dang thing. This also led to the forming of the Gulf Breeze Research Team which is a group that would meet most nights to document the UFOs seen in the skies over Gulf Breeze. And they were formed under MUFON guidelines and uh, were a staple in the community for a number of years. That's a nice way to make friends. Oh, it's so, it's so nice. <laughs> Do you see that? Is anybody filming that? Hey, guys, there's a group of us. Why haven't we yeah. produced concrete footage? Yeah. What's going on? I brought brownies. <laughs> it's the the UFO comes out every night at nine o'clock, and yet every night at nine o'clock, I forget my darn camera. Every single time. Also, if you are in one of these groups, please different angles. Yeah, <laughs> different angles. Do not, do not, do not shoot in in portrait. You need to shoot in landscape. You animals, come on. <laughs> Landscape is the preferred means of capture. Come on, jerks. The year 1990 turned out to be one of the strangest in the Gulf Breeze saga. Early that year, um, and this is where it's going to get really sad, the Walters family dog, Crystal, was poisoned. Oh, man. Wait a second here. Wait a second here, Rob. I saw you tweet about Crystal being poisoned, and I thought that was your dog. Oh my god. I am so relieved. Holy crap. (laughs) What's your dog's name? Her name is Luna. Okay. So, not really similar at all. But I was like, who the heck is... Who could Rob be tweeting about dogs being poisoned if it was not his own dog? And I thought that that's sweet, sweet... Because she's like a poodle dachshund, isn't she? She is. Yeah. So therefore, she is basically my dog's sister. Okay, half sister, to be fair. I think we've already established that before. We have. Um, And so I was really quite distraught about that. So it's as though she has been raised from the dead. So she like the phoenix rising (laughs) from the ashes. I'm sorry. She is reborn. I'm sorry that Crystal died. That sucks. But I am so glad that it was Crystal that died. (laughs) Whew. All right. We have been through the emotional spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, roller coasters. Yes. For a second, I felt it. But really, as I read it in the book, I really took the book and I threw it down. I was upset. Oh, yeah. Very upset. 
Ed and Francis believed that someone had broken into their home, poisoned their dog, and had stolen a photo album that contained copies of the photos Ed had taken. Mm. So yeah, this uh, this Who does part that? of the story, <laughs> I I I I mean, I don't know. It seems very it suspicious. Here. You break in, okay? You find the photo album, okay? Yes. Yeah. Objective achieved. Oh, doggo. Just. A random I'm a mad cat person. person. Oh no! <laughs> yes, and then yes. what? It, it it does not make any sense. And um, I just want to say this to whomever poisoned the Walters dog, to whomever poisoned Crystal. I would just like you to know if you are listening to this, there is a special place in hell for you. Whether that was Ed Walters himself, whether it was somebody else, I hope you rot in hell. I'd like to add on to that. If you're the kind of person, I know, I know this might come off as controversial, okay? Okay, I know that this is maybe not the right thing to say, but if you're the kind of person who poisons dogs, don't listen to my podcast. Get out of here. What the hell is wrong with you? Exactly. And you are not welcome on my podcast feed either. Get your shit. Get it out of my feed. (laughs) And you know what? I want you to go live your life in the corner of a room and not move. Is, is Is there a possibility... Okay. That crystal might have gotten into the rat poison somehow. Oh well, now that's an interesting one. Like it's an interesting, it's dog, an interesting dog's theory. getting to everything. Uh, yeah. The problem is, is that Ed Walters controls my perception of what happened <laughs> that to his true. dog. That is fair. That is <laughs> the problem of the day. Yes. This is the the entire problem of this whole damn thing, and. Yeah, uh, you'll lose your mind within this minefield of UFO literature. I just threw my book down. Whoa. Yes. I know your passion. You're going to have to add a special effect sound <laughs> to that. Yeah. Here, I'll make one for you. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. The annual MUFON Symposium that year was set to be held in July of that year in Gulf Breeze. But a month before... It took place. The debunkers would emerge to use their dirty tricks on Ed. That a boy. And uh, one of my favorite phrases from this book that uh, Ed puts forward is uh, "debunkers dirty deeds." Mm. I believe is how are it they says done it. dirt cheap? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I hope so, and I hope they have a rock and riff to go with it. On June tenth, the Pensacola News Journal ran a story called Gulf Breeze UFO Model Found. The author of the piece was a man named Craig Myers, who by all accounts, and there is no easy way to say this, is a giant asshole. I'm sorry that I had to say that word, but he is. In 2006, he published a book of his own about the Gulf Breeze sightings called War of the Words. If you are thinking of purchasing this book, I would not recommend it. It is a truly awful book. Craig Myers is a truly awful person. He, at one point, calls a classroom full of fourth and fifth graders a group of emotionally handicapped people. Yes, that is... (laughs) (laughs) No, no, they are not. The the best part was... The best part about it was, so right mean. after he called them emotionally handicapped, they began to troll him, which is the best thing ever. <laughs> yeah, yes. internet. It's great. 
Craig Myers, dirtbag, <laughs> don't trust his book. But the way that the story unfolded, Craig Myers essentially walked up to the door of the house that the Walters had lived in and basically said, have you found the model? And they had no idea what. So he took them up to their attic and they brought forth this model there are pictures of it which uh i i'll post them online i've already kind of put them in uh the not alone facebook group mm-hmm. um they look good yeah it's one heck of a model not really yeah <laughs> so it, it, it is it's pretty rough according to the article this object did look eerily like the object that ed had photographed it was comprised of different sizes styrofoam plates stacked on top of each other the portholes were made from old building plans that ed had written the news journal wouldn't allow anyone to examine the model for i want to say it was about two weeks after publishing the story well when they finally did what we were able to find out is that the material that it was made from was actually datable Hmm. the debunkers were not going to get away with it (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. They were able to date part of this model, and according to Ed, he had created house plans for a couple named Mr. and Mrs. Thomas. Likely story. These plans were created on September 6th, 1989, nearly a year and a half since Ed's final photographs were taken. Brightness tests were conducted on the model and found that they were not consistent with the photographs Ed had taken. So that's interesting. Because like the same way that Ed Walters shapes our understanding of what happened here, you do have this other individual who, by all accounts, is a bit of a jerk, uh, mm-hmm. whose stated goal is to debunk what is happening And then according to him, he Mm. finds this model. So it's like, yes, there is obviously one thing that is more likely than the other, which is that what Ed said did not happen. But I feel like so often there's this reverse bias. There's this other bias wherein, rightfully so, people are skeptical when when people present UFO evidence and things like that. And yet when debunking evidence is, is presented... There's no skepticism to it. People are like, oh, look at that. Yeah, you found the model. Doesn't matter that the the plans most likely, from what we can tell, weren't in existence at the time and, and this, that, and the other thing. But it does. It just, for better or worse, it just highlights this other side because whenever I've done any research on Gulf Breeze, I mean, it is always considered a hoax based off of this model itself. So, yeah. The fact that we have dated materials you know i i believe that i'm not going to get into it just yet but i i I do believe that ed you know faked these photos but not with that model yeah yeah i think he used something a little bit better but the strangest part of the gulf breeze saga was yet to come on july 14th ed and francis received a frantic message on their answering machine from one of Laura's friends named Kathy Foster. Kathy claimed that she had been housing six American soldiers for the night, and early that morning, 
Kathy was awoken to the sight of an FBI agent pointing a gun in her face and placing handcuffs on her wrists. She was taken to the local sheriff's department along with her mother, a local psychic named Anna, and interrogated for a number of hours before being released. And thus begins the saga of the Gulf Breeze 6. And now I'm going to defer to Sam on this topic. Listen to me here. Listen to me here. Yep. I don't want to take too much time with this. I hate these people. I understand. I hate these people so much. But let me go ahead. I'm going to try to break this down. Okay, what's up, yes. Jason? What's that look for? I'm so confused. What are you confused about? Who are these people? Yeah, I'm going to tell you that. All right. <laughs> Jason has no... He's like, uh, I think the quote goes, he's like a kid who wanders into a movie theater and asks what's going on. He has no frame of reference. So I'm here to do that. <laughs> All right. So like Rob was saying, hard enough as it may be to believe, this whole Edward Walter saga was not the only weird thing or even the weirdest weird thing happening in Gulf Breeze around this time. Now, this is what I want you to picture. I want you to picture a van. What kind and of this, van? Uh, like, a, like, a, a, like a creepy van. Not like a creepy yep, van, but the, the, yeah, the, the stereotypical, not like a minivan, <clears throat> nothing like that, just a good old-fashioned van. Okay, I want you to picture a broken taillight, all right? Okay. So, you have this van driving around Gulf Breeze. Now, on Saturday, July 14th, 1990, somebody else sees this, and it's a police officer. Now, the police officer pulls over the rented van, and what comes of this can only, and I I say this kind of ironically, but not really, can only be described as an apocalypse. Now, this is why I say that, because if you look at the original, like, Greek for apocalypse, it simply means to uncover or to reveal something, usually in a -hmm. a magnificent specter or spectrum of, of whatever's going on. And that's exactly what happened to this police officer. He uncovered something really quite profound, I guess. Not really profound. Insane is a better word. Now, the driver of this vehicle, whose name was Michael Huckstade, he quickly was identified as being a deserter from the army. He was summarily arrested However, it became quickly apparent that he was not alone. Haha, that's the name of the podcast. (laughs) Now, (laughs) what the record seemed to show is that he was one of six different deserters who had left their posts five days ago on the 9th of July as they were stationed halfway around the world in Augsburg, West Germany. They were stationed at the largest foreign NSA listening post. Now, like I said, there were six of them in total. Each of them had top secret clearance. You have Kenneth G. Beeson, Vance Davis, Annette Eccleston, Michael Huxtade, Chris Perlock, and William Sutterberg. Now, these individuals would later come to be known as the Gulf Breeze Six. The group was brought together out of a few common interests, not the least of which was the occult. 
not the least of which was UFOs, not the least of which was Ouija boards. They loved them. They went crazy for them. Sounds like a fun group. Yeah. it's a. It, they were obsessed with parapsychology. They loved it. They adored it. So I want to be clear on something here. There are approximately 500 different ways that this story goes. I'm just going to focus on one of them. I'm just going to tell this narrative. I guarantee it's different than what some people have read because, again, not only do you have six different people involved in this, you have one person who kind of really rose to the top, and then he went on to tell like 17 different stories. So here's what I think seems to be the most likely scenario while also respecting the the paranormal aspect of it okay so this group begins to hold ouija board sessions in december of 1989 as so often happens in these sorts of seances it's not long before the group makes contact with something out of this world now in their cases they made contact with quite a few things Some of these names will be familiar. You have people like the Virgin Mary. You have Timothy, companion of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Mark, the evangelist. Zechariah, a prophet of Israel. However, not all of the spirits they encountered were religious figures, although it will become clear why so many of them were. Now, the most impactful of entities that they came in contact with was one by the name of Sapphire, who was an extraterrestrial intelligence. Now, Sapphire was a giver of predictions, which we'll run through some of them here uh, a little bit later on. Not that far later on, because, like I said, we're not spending a lot of time on this. But she gave these predictions, and these predictions were what convinced them of what uh, the six members of what was going on. Now, we also here see a a sweet return to what we thought we had left so far in the past, which is channeling and this sort of like I'm going to close my eyes and just start talking and make stuff up. And and I believe it was Vance Davis who was the one who information was typically channeled through. But the most impactful of these predictions had to do with an earthquake that was to take place in Iran. Now, Sapphire provided them ahead of time with the exact number of casualties. There were going to be 292,236 deaths. I was not able to find an earthquake in Iran that, that had that specific number of deaths. But then again, I'm not Sapphire. So... It's weird because you, I mean, granted they were in the NSA, so who knows, but you would have thought that this would be like worldwide news that they were watching and they'd be like, oh my God, she was right. But in any case, this allows them to trust Sapphire and the other entities that were communicating along with her. It was at this point that the beings begin to give them a clear picture of the whole big plan that was taking place. See, the Gulf Breeze 6 were supposed to become instruments of God. The end of the world was coming and coming soon, and they were going to be in charge of leading humanity through this. Now, the actual apocalypse would not take place until 1998, but the next eight years was going to be critical for their training, and there was soon going to be a massive conflict between the United States and Europe. So, they needed to leave. They needed to get out. 
Also, they stated that they were not the only people in on this. They talked about there being a vast network in Augsburg of people who were disappointed that they were not the chosen ones. But, you know, that's going to happen. That's going to happen sometimes. Mm -hmm. Oh, it is. It is. It's going to piss so many people off. You can't always be a chosen one. (laughs) No, you can't. Now, I'd be so good at it. (laughs) Of course you would. You'd be the best chosen one. Um, However... The mission specifically, beyond leading humanity and and all of this, the specific mission that made it to the press especially was the extermination of the Antichrist. This was their solemn charge. Now, one version of the story claims that Gulf Breeze was their initial destination because Sapphire was guiding their every movement, telling them, when to to catch what plane, when to desert, when to to get in a car, when to get like literally micromanaging every aspect of their lives. It sounds insufferable. And she had told them that Gulf Breeze was going to be safe for a time. That could be true. I don't think it is. What actually, I believe, happened is that one of the individuals, a person named Kenneth Beeson, again, one of the, the Gulf Breeze six, he knew a woman by the name of Anna Foster, and he was in love with her. Oh, God. Oh, no. (laughs) Foster owned an esoteric psychic bookstore and was a proud supporter of the garbage organization MUFON. She was the mother of a... (laughs) Uh, I would just like to correct that acronym. They are known as Dumb MUFON. Dumb MUFON. Dumbass MUFON. (laughs) Thank you. That's what we're dealing with. Trash people. Or not trash people. Well, some of them, but a trash organization overall. Obviously, Rob and I have been burned by MUFON in the past. I've been hurt. I've been hurt. I've been hurt bad. Hurt people, hurt people. Um, but in any case, Foster, Anna Foster, was the mother of a close friend of Laura Walters, and therefore she was obviously very interested in the Walters case. She felt that she was privy to it and knew a lot of information. And Beeson and Foster had had an intimate relationship the year before the they went absent without leave um or a wall from uh augsburg so that pretty much catches you up to the fateful traffic stop however what happens next is pretty abnormal now granted assuming that all of these people came from an nsa listening post they have top secret clearance that's all true um it it doesn't necessarily it's not too unbelievable but essentially what happens is they are all rounded up and they're rounded up very quickly. So you get this idea that the Gulf Breeze six was already under uh, investigation. They were already being kind of watched by the government because uh, the one who was arrested pulled over Michael. He did not tell the police where his cohorts were. And yet they descended on the, the Foster's residence and, yeah, grabbed him within like an hour of him being picked up. So there, there, there's this idea that the government already knew where they were, but they were just waiting and watching. So that's a little weird. But once... You could say that they were sitting, waiting, wishing like one Jack Johnson yes. would do. But what were they wishing for? <laughs> the end of the world? I, I believe that is what they were wishing for, but... Again, we don't really know because the narrative of the story is going to change so many it's different times. It's so convoluted. Again, this is not even one full, complete telling of it. Um, 
In any case, though, they get picked up. A word comes down from higher up saying, hey, you can hold these guys, but you are not to uh, you are absolutely not to interrogate them. You're not really even supposed to talk to them. You just keep them there uh, and and we'll be there to pick them up at another time. So they are then transferred uh, and taken out of Gulf, Gulf Breeze, taken out of, uh, I don't know if they're taken out of all of Florida or just Gulf, Gulf Breeze, but they're taken to a military base basically and handed over. And then what's really interesting is that a few days later, this message comes out. Let me take a look and see if I can find the, um, the exact text. Oh, I have it. it here. I have it right here. Right now, if you would like me to read it, I know of the message yeah. that you speak. Yeah, so... So, it says... And where did it come from? Do you remember? It was allegedly sent to the Air Force, but somehow Mark Curtis of WEAR Channel 3 was able to get a okay. copy of it. But it said, ABC, NBC, CBS, AP, UPI, U.S. Army... Free the Gulf Breeze 6. We have the missing plans, the box of 500 plus photographs, and the plans you want back. Here is proof with close-ups cut out. Next, we send the close-ups and then everything unless they are released. Answer code AUGSBB3CM. So you have this really, yeah, cryptic message that comes out. And what's interesting is... These individuals are, I mean, they are quote unquote let go. They are dishonor, dishonorably discharged. No, 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 no. That is not. That is not what? what Vance Davis claims. He claims that they were given a general discharge, not dishonorably, but discharged. Uh, they went AWOL. I'm trying to find. How is that possible? Exactly, they <clears throat> did go AWOL. But according to not just Vance Davis, but the people that have researched this, they were given. General discharge. See, now that is weird. That is weird, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. I believe that is because it was making such national attention that the army just wanted to get it over, wash its hands of it. Yeah. So so, give them discharges, get them off the books. We don't need to deal with it anymore. Because as all of this is coming out, I mean, like, there's this this headline from July 20th, so six days after the... um, after the van is pulled over that says army charges six who were a wall for Jesus. So like this idea of the cult aspect, this idea of, of killing the antichrist, this was thrown up into the air and published everywhere. Um, and so from there you then have another question as well, which is, is it the truth? Not again, not objectively is this what happened or, uh, uh, or even if this is what they believed happened, but could this be just a cover story? And again, according to who you ask, you're going to get a yes, you're going to get a no. This whole thing was pretty well shrouded and and really forgotten. Whoa, my chair just broke. <laughs> it's fine. It's good. Hello. Um, <laughs> damn it. You hit. You, you hit. Okay he hit I hit the release thing, thing, and I came on down. Here I am. Let me just change that. Oh hot damn. Oh hot damn. So. This gets, I mean, as media does, it gets picked up and then it gets dropped, right? On to the next thing. However, you then get, a few years later, this individual, Vance Davis, he publishes a book called 
Unbroken Promises, A True Story of Courage and Belief. And courage being the um oh how do we how do we put this? The most questionable word yeah. in that entire entire title. Yeah. And from there you have just a whole lot of really really strange claims. First off, Vance talks about how he had been able to channel all of his life, or at least for a, a big part of it, because he was in contact with a being called Kia. Yes, Kia, like the car. Um, he Popular name. Yeah. <laughs> he was enrolled in mind control courses that were held at a school in New York. He mastered techniques of self-hypnosis through the power of imagination. But... <laughs> Before, before all of this, or theoretically before all of this, um, you have not only Sapphire, the alien intelligence, who's like planning for the end of the world and stuff, but Kia, uh, whose people are called the Kiasians. Wow. Yeah. That's original. <laughs> they were en route to Earth to assist this alien alliance in protecting uh, the human race. And they were going to be there by 1992. So... A little late. A little late. Detour. Not here yet, it would seem. It, it's a little known fact as well that Kia's last name was Sorrento. Sorrento. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> I hate it. Um, in any case, Kia becomes like his guardian angel. There's an armada in space waiting to descend upon the earth. The end days are coming. This, that, and the other thing. I'm ready. Um, but like I said, Vance, Vance Davis really becomes like the the face of all of this he he digs it back up i think it was about five years later that this was published he digs it up and goes from there um and really at the end of the day it's all just wild here's i want to i want to make a quote from davis just so you kind of understand what you're going with here okay he claims that when he joins the nsa he was quote unquote retrained in history all right. This is his direct quote from the book. Quote, what I learned was why history happened, who history was, why or when history was. The dates in the book are not all that accurate. Those are accepted dates, not factual dates. To give an example, the founding of this country did not occur. The founding fathers were already meeting many years before the advent, the war against England occurred. There was already a plan in place for the founding of a new country. It was not just because British soldiers shot someone uh, or the stand back. It was the series of events that happened over a period of 60 to 70 years, and they've been planning for the long time. Unquote. Now, he's not necessarily wrong, obviously. I mean, like, the founding of our country did not just happen because of, I think he's referring to the Boston Massacre there. That was just one in a long line of things. However, to say that the founding of our country did not occur is kind of a weird way to, like, phrase that, I guess. So he claims that this is true of absolutely everything in the world, that nothing that we're taught is actually how things objectively happened. It's all... Uh, managed, it's all manipulated, which again, probably not necessarily wrong, but I do think that we know more than he thinks we know. And he also, of course, was a huge expert in UFOs, as you might imagine. He was such an expert that he created a new word for them, or a new acronym, AVC, Alien Visitation Craft. 
And that's how you know you're good at ufology, is when you make a new three-letter acronym. That's how you know you've made it. I don't know what became of this man. I don't care what became of this man. I don't care what became of any of them. As far as I know, the majority of them, at least at least four of them, if not five of them, literally just like disappeared and went back to normal life. And then you have Vance Davis, who normal life just wasn't enough for him. I'd like to close with one more quote of his. Quote, we have a special gene that cannot be copied, cannot be manipulated. They have tried. We are told that it is called the Jesus gene, unquote. <laughs> so the Jesus, the Jesus gene. gene. And like I said, there's all these different. Is that the one that, uh, you know, pays for all our sins? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the yep. gene there. Uh, there's all these different, I mean, literally like a hundred different um, predictions I don't know that any of them have come true. So martial law will be declared in New York. Uh, The Constitution will be suspended. King Hussein declares war on Israel. Well, there's one that definitely didn't happen. Sorry. Uh, The U.S. government will admit knowledge of other life forms. So an explosion from a terrorist bomb will destroy a supermarket, injuring 50 people. Uh, man finds his birthplace in the solar system. So that's a pretty interesting one. Yeah, there you go. The only one I think that, that is here that is not like past its expiration date is this one that says quantum leaps and spiritual movement will be seen by 2032. So that's a really hard thing to quantify. Uh, it's still on the it's table. It's still on We've the table. Got time. Anyway, that's the Gulf Breeze 6. They're a garbage group of garbage people. Um, I just, the, the whole time that you were saying that, the only thing I could think was, what would Andrew DeBossi oh, say love about him. this? He'd love him. He would. He He's would. He's probably one of them. <laughs> one of the rumors that I just want to make mention of before we move on from these uh, garbage group of people is that they claim that Ed Walters oh, was, in fact, the Antichrist. That's right. I forgot to mention that. Jacques Vallée actually, like posits that in his book revelation to assassinate ed walters yeah crap i can't believe i forgot that that's pretty much like the link so again you have to be a movie you have this idea that like oh we were in gulf breeze for a higher reason not just because one of our members wanted to see this girl that he loved but rather that walters himself was the devil yeah so there's that cool there is that we're gonna start to conclude here but praise the lord Yes. The flap and Gulf Breeze continued until about 1997, and for a number of years, Ed ran a UFO conference in the area up until the late 90s. It's important to note that during all of these experiences that Ed is having, he has the full support of about 95% of the Gulf Breeze community. That's why They love this guy. It is wild. There are a couple of exceptions, and the most notable exception is the mayor of Gulf Breeze, Ed Gray III, who stated emphatically, quote, If we could take legal action because there has been any criminal involvement by any per- persons perpetrating a hoax, we intend to do so. End quote. Fair. I don't blame him, because Gulf Breeze appeared on every single show at the time that talked about UFOs that existed. So 
I can imagine being fed up with it entirely at the end of all of this. So by 2001, having been fed up with all the ridicule that they were receiving, Ed and Francis Walters changed their names and moved away wow. from Gulf Breeze. That's a leap. Now, before I let Jason run wild on these photos and we present our conclusions, I just want to briefly touch on the uh, investigations done by QFOS and uh, a few others during this time. The Center for UFO Studies, or QFOS, were big critics of Ed Walters, the Gulf Breeze sightings, and of Bruce Maccabee's work to authenticate the photos. In their quarterly newsletter called the Center Investigations Quarterly in the April 1988 issue, it contained harsh criticisms of the case. And the author, Dr. Uh, Robert D. Boyd, wrote, quote, Any person that proclaims the principal events and or photographs to be consistent with high-quality UFO events seriously jeopardizes their position in not only the UFO phenomenon community, but in the general field of science as well. Huh. End quote. That's an interesting quote. That's probably my favorite quote of the night. That uh, that <laughs> almost implies that being someone who's taking the time to analyze these photos doesn't already jeopardize your position in the general field of science. Kind of, yes. I agree. Um, interestingly enough, the cover of that month's issue is a cartoon that was actually lifted from one of... Uh, Jim Mosley's uh, issues of Saucer Smear. It's a cartoon mocking the Gulf Free sightings. It's pretty great. Uh, I'll take a screen grab of it and post it in our Facebook groups. All right. And then in the next issue published in July 1988, QFOS would actually plot out the sightings that Ed was having, that the community was having, the uh, media attention that it was getting, and uh, I forget there was something else on the on the graph, but they would plot it onto a graph. This was, again, done by uh, Robert D. Boyd, and he came to these conclusions, quote, All reports of activity began with Ed's activity, uh, but reported publicly only after Ed's initial sighting report was made known. All report activity ended within a few days of Ed's last known activity. The entire flap seems to have been centered around Ed and Ed only. The flap took four months of heavy activity by Ed with the assistance of local investigators and media involvement before it finally developed. And when the other witness activity did finally develop, it dropped off dramatically quite the opposite to known UFO phenomenon wave patterns. This preliminary analysis demonstrates strong indication of an artificially induced flap of very localized sighting reports, although any number of independent reports may very well be an observation of an unknown, the likelihood that many of them are true unknowns is extremely low. End quote. Holy mouth garbage. <laughs> ah. You made it. You did it. I'm uh, yes. proud of you. Robert Boyd would go on to publish a more detailed report called Failure at Science, mm. in which he criticized Dr. Bruce Maccabee's work even further. According to the October 1988 issue of the CIQ, 
Maccabee held back his analysis of the photos until the MUFON Symposium of that year, which which was cited by many for its ethical concerns. Now, I don't think I talked too much about the quote-unquote Believer Bill and Jane photographs in the first two parts of our no. series. So I'm going to kind of, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just, just, we're almost just stick there, with buddy. me. Yeah, we're almost, we're almost there. So a gentleman who called himself Believer Bill brought photos of the same object that Ed had photographed to the Gulf Breeze Sentinel. I want to say it was in December of 1987. His photos were printed in the Sentinel and in Ed's book, The Gulf Breeze Sightings. Now, Jane was a woman who claimed to have taken a photo of the object that Ed had seen a year before the events in Gulf Breeze, and her photo was published in Ed's book as well. So, in 1997, UFO investigator Barbara Becker sent an inquiry to the publisher of Ed's book, William Morrow, to find out who held the copyright on the Believer Bill and Jane photos because they weren't attributed to anybody in the book. Normally, it would have the author's name underneath it or something. Mm -hmm. The response she got back claimed that Ed owned the copyrights on the photos, and shortly after that, Ed actually contacted her himself and was basically set to sue her over this whole matter mm. for whatever reason. That's fishy. And given how copyright laws work, the person who took the photo would be listed on any official copyright paperwork as the author of the work, even if they've signed over their rights to the photo to another party. The photographs were registered to Ed, making it clear that he had taken the photos. And mysteriously, the lawsuit was dropped. So that's one kind of strike there for for Ed, you know, officially Mm -hmm. here. And now I'm going to defer to you, Jason. You're the guy on the ground with the photograph analysis. Go for it, buddy. Okay. So I've actually, I've stared at these photos for way too long. Um... (laughs) They're beginning to look real. <laughs> no, they just keep falsifying themselves more and more to me. Um, <laughs> I, I brought the, I brought this up a few times uh, during one of our last episodes where the, the sizing isn't quite right between them. Yeah, and it and it really you you can tell right away by comparing um, multiple photos next to each other that this thing seems to grow and change in physical size where we expect it to be something completely different. Um, my biggest thing is that all the photos, the ship looks at least in some capacity transparent. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's a really easy and dead giveaway for a double exposure photo, um, which people have been doing double exposure photos for pretty much ever so what is that is that when you like take a picture of a picture or how does that work so for us now essentially what it does is when you're using film uh you can you expose the photo to you expose the film to light in which that that's what captures the image okay so you do that twice on the same frame of film oh okay back in the mid 1800s 
photographers used to do that with uh, the plates that they even used. That you were able to double expose the plates. Um, and they got away with uh, essentially making it look like uh, whoever they're taking a portrait was of is getting visited by some sort of apparition. Yeah. And it actually was... Yeah, spirit, spirit photography. Yeah, yeah. and that okay. became extremely common. Uh, as a way to make extra money as a photographer, because I could imagine that it's probably fairly expensive to get a photo taken of mm-hmm. you. But those kind of tricks aren't like the only thing that was going on. Uh, multiples are a trick that have been happening for almost ever, also kind of um, affecting how light interacts with either the plates or now for us film. Uh, and they'd actually have apparition, app, yeah, appar- uh, apparition, apparitions. Apparitions? No, I'm sorry. No, they'd actually have a way to uh, <laughs> essentially close off half the lens. Oh, okay. In order to take an image of someone standing on the left or the right, and then they can rotate that around and have someone else stand on the uh, have that same person stand on the opposite side in order to give you the imagery of having two of the same people. Uh, you can do that x amount of times, really, if you wanted to, depending on how much or how little you are covering up the lens when you okay. take the image. Um, it's actually been really cool. Uh, f- tricks with photography do also tend to match what is kind of going on in pop culture as well. Okay. Uh, like we were just talking about with, with spirit photos, those uh, became a lot more popular after the Second World War, or mm-hmm. the First World War as well because people were having a, a heavy impact with the loss of life. And weirdly enough these photos were kind of a way to cope with it yeah for sure Uh, oh for sure and also because of how impactful stage magic had become as far as a source of entertainment um stage magicians would uh, a common trope would be um taking a decapitated photo of themselves Mm. where essentially it's working very similar like a double exposure uh instead what you're really doing is messing with the film to where or i guess the plates to where you are removing some of the exposed area to essentially chop off the head did they then then, like put it in their hands yeah 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 so like here i can find one real quick for you but uh they were doing these kind of film tricks and actually uh photographers also picked up off of um stage magicians as well using uh, dark backgrounds in order to make the effect more noticeable Mm. and make it pop out. And if you look at every one of Ed's photos, they're from a dark background, which helps out a lot for double exposures. What I found crazy enough is that you can even do a a double exposure photo with some Polaroid cameras, which when you think about it, you shouldn't really be able to do because you click the trigger out, shoots out a print and you're done. Um, But there are any almost any camera that has a timed shutter, you can effectively overexpose as many times as you want. Huh. You could set up the timed shutter uh, and it's exploiting the mechanic uh, mechanism of it to where you're taking the image. You go back to the camera. If you end the timer, then it will shoot out the camera. But if you just close and reopen the actual camera system itself, it triggers it to keep the film uh, still in the cartridge to get exposed again. And you can do that multiple times, just resetting the timer. Interesting. Uh, Rob, was there not mm-hmm. a time when Walters took a picture using a Polaroid camera? His main camera was a Polaroid. Yeah, that's why I bring it up. And okay. even when he purchased a new camera, it was just a newer okay. Polaroid. Because I, th- I yeah. was pretty sure that was a part of like 
quote unquote, the credibility of it was like, well, he's using a Polaroid. And then remind me as well, because it's been since September. But it was also that like he was given a locked camera, quote unquote, locked camera, and he was unable to make the, the images happen, right? He was able to capture one photograph with that camera. And it wasn't his UFO. It was a different kind of UFO. It was the quote-unquote mothership that everybody was all in in an uproar. They had a press conference and everything about it. But they only gave him that camera that one time to use. It's not like after that. And like Dr. Bruce Maccabee actually helped him design the uh, stereo camera system that he ended up using toward the end. Interesting. All right. Yes. Sorry, Jason. I just no, no. To make you're sure. good. You're good. Um, one thing that I found was really interesting because I I read a a little excerpt of a actual artist who uses double exposure um, photography all the time in his works is uh, he loves it because it's never perfect with film. It's not like the the digital aspect that we have now with double exposure where everything is crisp and clean and super sterile. There were a lot of times where he took images and he wasn't sure what the double exposure would even look like. And I think that probably adds into the fact when you look at Ed Walter's photos, they don't look perfect and they should be looking perfect. That being said, Rob, I I agree on you with you on the um the model that was found. I think uh, that is not the correct one that was probably used to fake these. Um, There's no reason to hold on to it, even less reason to um, wrap it in your own blueprint mm-hmm. paper. There's, there's no reason to it. Now, that being said, uh, I think what it does go to show is how simple it is to make a mock-up that looks that good and that accurate. Mm-hmm. But from mm-hmm. the shape of it, it doesn't look quite right. I feel like there's a little bit more angle on the side of the, the main, I guess, chamber of the ship itself but i i felt like it was a, a dead dead giveaway that well for someone that uh made a telescope with, with mirrors at the age of 12 yeah. could probably fake a pretty good looking uh model that's true if if what he's saying is true about that he definitely has the the visual uh manipulation of light down yeah he does yeah i i'm firmly uh within the belief that he designed some kind of model that was used for it because, and I had research assistance on this episode from one of my good buddies, Rory. He did a uh, timeline of events. He came to some interesting conclusions, but his belief is that Ed took the initial five photographs and brought them to the Gulf Breeze Sentinel. Now, if you look at those first five photographs that's where you see that the object in them is more semi-transparent than in many of the later photos his belief was that after the i want to say the sixth photo was taken which is of the object which is still looks very semi-transparent over a sky that's a little bit lighter blue okay but it's like i believe at dusk but after that the quality of the photographs kind of get better. Yeah. So his belief is that Dwayne Cook helped him make these photographs and kind of helped him to legitimize. Now, 
Dwayne may not have believed that Ed's experiences were a complete and total hoax. It may have been that he believed that Ed was experiencing something and he was trying to, you know, make a big deal about it, try, you know, bring some attention to it or something like that. Ah, so it's, um, what was the old phrase? Uh, where it's, it, you, you do bad things in order to get a positive outcome. Can't remember. The ends justify the means. Mm. Yeah, pretty much. It's a little tougher of a theory to buy because uh, basically you have to kind of agree that everybody around Ed is basically just lying for him, which includes his wife, his children, mm -hmm. Dwayne Cook, everybody that works for the Gulf Breeze Sentinel, members of MUFON. I mean, someone's going to slip up and, and say the truth. Yeah, you would think so. There are things about this flap and, like, Ed's experiences that just don't make sense. Like, QFO said, the way that all other flaps before this are kind of plotted out. They have different hallmarks than the one in Gulf Breeze. The Gulf Breeze sightings definitely revolve around Ed himself. And the way that they actually plotted it out on the graph, you can actually follow it along and, and see that usually sighting activity starts to peak after Ed has had an experience. Mm. It's also telling to note that Nobody in Ed's neighborhood ever reported seeing a UFO. Right. Really? Yes. I, I think that's a big deal. Yeah. Nobody yeah, totally. ever reported seeing a UFO on the same day as Ed or any other day. That is pretty telling. We could get into the, you know, our final conclusions on this and how we feel about it. I've got a whole bunch of stuff here. So, Sam, if you want to go first. My conclusions are very simple. Friends, family, countrymen, Romans, lend me your ears. Ed Walters was a wackadoo. However, for whatever reason, probably because I'm the most gullible person I know, I do believe him and that he saw something. I also think, especially when we're looking at his hypnosis ses sessions, which are off the chain, they're pretty wild. However... For me, one of the core components of hypnosis, either going good or going bad, is that you're going to be influenced by all of the different things you've ever heard. You know, all of the different uh, uh, examples of alien contact or whatever. There is, without a shadow of a doubt, like Ed was definitely influenced by... Uh, other individuals who underwent hypnosis to recover memories, most notably Whitley Strieber, as I've mentioned a few times. However, I think that his narrate narrative differs enough to say that there could have been something else going on as well. I think that he brings up some really good typical tropes, but they're not the tropes that necessarily disprove. And especially when you're looking at, for instance, some of his uh, encounters with aliens or extraterrestrials or whatever, they took place right before big life changes, like moving to Costa Rica. And it's like, when you aren't aware of what is happening, it's happening to you in the night or whatever, then you just think, okay, something happened, uh, or, or not even anything happened. My life has gone a different way. And now I'm going to do something else. However, once these things are uncovered and are seen, it becomes easier to say, oh, I was actually acting on some sort of 
unconscious desire to run away because of a traumatic experience I had. Now, of course, all of this is presupposed by a belief in aliens and by a belief that aliens do abduct people and interact with people on a not infrequent basis. So that's obviously my bias going into this. I think that Ed Walters is the best example of a story that you have to already believe in UFOs to believe his story. If you are even a little bit skeptical and and not saying that everybody who believes in UFOs believes this story, a lot of people don't even if they're diehard believers. But I don't know of a single person who, like, if you're trying to convince them, would be convinced by the story. It's ridiculous in a lot of ways. But even just the little bit of his book that I did read, it it was interesting. It, it seemed authentic. And of course, when all of the physical evidence has been proven to be fake, and when the narratives change and, and this and that and the other, it's the easiest thing in the world to say, well, this was fake, this was wrong, and I have absolutely no reason for believing it, but I do. So, that's just me. That's my thing. Jason, what do you think? Sam, you hurt me. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> you, you, just, you just hurt me, brother. I'm sorry. No, you're not. No, uh, I'm I not. Think by now, everyone's pretty confident with the way I feel about Ed. Um, Lay it out, I, just I, in case. I think Ed is a, is, is a part of a long and collective line of hoaxers that's okay have a hobby in photography all right and modeling um i we've had photographs of ufo hoax since claims of ufos have been happening it's like i was saying before with with spiritualism and, and taking photos of spirits and then having just fun with photos with which is what people do we have yeah. fun with photography all the time uh, we do it even more so now than we ever have. Uh, I I think that Ed is just a part of a, a the group of people that enjoy getting the attention and that enjoy trying to fool people. All right, because he can. All right. Does the wait 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 so, sorry. I apologize. Yeah, no, no. So the ahead. end of the story then, I'm not going to try to refute you because you're probably right. But the end of the story wherein he and, and uh, Francis change their names and move away, to you, is that just like an indication of an unintended consequence? Like, we tried to have a good time. We tried to, to make people believe us and this and that. But at the end of the day, it got to be such a thing that they had to leave I, I think what happened is that, I mean, obviously, when we look at the photos, we we know that they're suspicious, to say mm-hmm. the very least. I think Ed w- has always been sitting right on the line of, well, he's just flat out lying to us versus some people that are, are pretty heavily believing what mm-hmm. he's saying. Um, and every time that he finds himself at that percentage point where the people calling him out on it, is is getting close to half or more mm-hmm. he ups the ante and comes out with something else and i think what happened was was purely he upped the ante too many times mm. and there is enough people that were harassing him for the fact that he was a hoaxer and he wasn't actually coming to the truth of it or even the other side i mean that's the thing is you he could come out i know because of 
the ways I feel about certain things, that if you're an individual who really believes in this stuff anyway and, and this and that, when someone does come out and say like, oh, it was a hoax, I, I am the hoaxer, I'm the one who perpetrated it, so often that is not met with a like, oh, darn it, that is met with a like, well, why are you lying now? It it has to be true. You know, after everything that's that's happened, it has to the be true. And so, you, right? Yeah, exactly. You're a government shell or something else. So I can I can respect that. I can respect both sides of that. There's just no good winning uh, winning situation when you're at this point one way or the other. Yeah, I, I think he tried to see how far he could take it, and he took it too far. Too far. Fair. I'm sorry for interrupting you, Rob. No, 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 that's fine. So here are my thoughts on this. I believe that Ed has had some type of genuine UFO experience in his nice. life. All right. I'm not saying that what happened in Gulf Breeze, everything that happened in Gulf Breeze was 100% true. However, I think that Ed faked a bunch of quote-unquote evidence to validate his experience, mm. whatever the heck it was. Now, part of the problem that I have with Ed is that his story is very linear. Mm. It follows a set pattern to where in the original reportings, which were contained in the MUFON UFO journal, and it started in March of uh, 88. In the original reportings, you have Ed by himself experiencing this stuff. Sometimes Frances is mentioned, but she's not a direct participant in his experiences. And then the next month, what you see is that she becomes a more active participant. She becomes this other eyewitness that can kind of lend credence to what Ed is experiencing. And then what you have after that is they move their operations to a park in order to gain more of a reputability to these sightings. And from there, this whole thing takes on a life of its own. The abduction narrative for me, regardless of of what these hypnosis sessions have yielded are way too neat for me. Mm. And the reason that he can pinpoint every eight years, these aliens abduct him and they put him through this process with this headgear, which is something I have never heard described in any other UFO abduction literature mm-hmm. before. And the fact that this is linear like this, it's too neat because when you talk about other abductees experiences it's all over the place it's not like you can pinpoint it to well they they showed up uh, in five years and then another five years and then another five years it's usually they show up for a period of time they go away and if that's the only you know recognition that you can gain from that sure that's kind of similar mm-hmm. but at the same time what we need to understand is that abduction narratives in the mainstream around this time were relatively new. Yeah. We didn't get widespread abduction accounts coming in until Communion and Intruders by Bud Hopkins was published in 87. To me, Ed picked and chose from Whitley Strieber's experiences, put it into his, and that became part of his narrative. But there are just certain aspects of this that are just too neat mm-hmm. An abduction is something that's not neat. It's this terrifying experience where you're ripped out uh, of your of your own reality, which it, it never seems to be like that for Ed. Yeah. It's just this experience. But um, 
A uh, few of the other points that I want to make here, because um, I, I wrote them down. Well, you look for those. I agree, like, completely. Yeah. I think that when you look at, at most uh, abduction experiences, it is it is diffuse be throughout a person's life. You know, it's very rare that you have just one, just two, three, four incidents. I mean, it's usually that, like, oh, I had this one thing that then triggered and made me aware that dozens, if not hundreds of times, like this has happened to me. However, I think that what I think that the point that can be made as well, especially that you kind of mentioned with the, the timing of this in relation to other abduction phenomena is that in order to describe anything, you have to have language. You have to have the ability to convey what happened to you. And it's for that exact reason. I think that we're kind of agreed on this, that even though his experiences do sound very similar to Streber's, it's their differences that make them more believable uh, for me because it's it's such a unique thing to then happen, is that he was using the language of UFO abduction at the time to describe his own experience, but where the, the pre-established archetypes, uh, whether he recognized them as what they were as archetypes or not, where those failed, then his memory was not able to cover up or to obscure or, or anything, and he was confronted with these really strange things like the news and like the uh, the emotional transfer. So, yeah, I, I agree mm. 100%. So, and a couple other points here. The characterizations of Ed that other people make of him, like uh-huh. Dr. Overlaid, and other does not match up with yeah does not match up with who ed is in Mm -hmm. this book at all which is it's a big red flag for me there was an individual named jerry black he was a ufo investigator who was interviewed in the early 2000s before he died and he claimed that ed paid buffon to kind of bring validation to his reports and to just basically go with the flow and he allegedly paid Bruce Maccabee $20,000 to write the chapter in his book. I don't know if that's necessarily mm-hmm. true. They haven't been able to really substantiate it. But if he did, well, you know, that's a strike mm-hmm. against him. Maccabee, he made an offhand comment once that the photos were probably faked. Mm-hmm. But he's kind of supported Ed Walters all the way insofar as to actually write a really long blog post defending Ed after Jerry Black did this interview. But there's one individual, and I really don't want to bring him up because it's just... Their accounts are very similar, and just the way that there is over-documentation, that everything's... Their experiences become about ego Mm -hmm. and feeding into ego... But you can't help but note the similarities between Ed Walters' experiences and Stan Romanek. And I hate saying that. And I don't want to... Let's just breeze right over. (laughs) Yes, but you can't help but note how their styles are very similar in the way that they document... Just document everything. Document with photos and videos mm-hmm. and, and, and stuff like that. There's so many similarities here that just I cannot believe that ninety nine percent of Ed Walter's story yeah. is true. Yeah. So that is where I find myself at the end of this. 
And uh, we, we've reached the end of our journey. Do you mean it, Papa? Through. Have we made it? I do mean we've made I it. Home, so, um, <laughs> yes. Well, well, no. we're, we're just about there. Uh, <laughs> How far? <laughs> How long? Really let that that strained voice come out. It's great for the dramatic narrative. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, so uh, let's uh, let's do our plugs all right. and all that stuff. All right. uh, hi, I'm Sam. You can find Not Alone all over the place. We are everywhere. You can just find Google us. Just Google it. It'll be just, fine. That's Jason's uh, <laughs> motto. Use the internet Use to your power. Use the web. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, all sorts of stuff there. And I'm sure there are others that we're on, but that's the spirit. Um, you can find us on Twitter at not alone pod. I am beer Lord Elfbane on Twitter. Twin, not Tinder. No, <laughs> Twinder. <laughs> uh, and Jason, what is your Tinder handle? Jason? I don't, I'm not on Tinder and you don't get a handle. You were on Tinder. I know a, you were a long time ago. I haven't, uh, fired up the old Tinder machine in three years or so. Wow. Yeah, dude. Are you sure? Because I remember you talking about it on the on podcast, podcast, which is not three years old. Seventeen. All right, you've okay. been caught in your lies. All right, there was one week where I, <laughs> where I was like, "No, this is evil. I'm done." All right, that's fair. Uh, where can we find you on Twitter? <laughs> At Mighty Boy. Mighty Boy. Um, yeah, we have a Facebook group. It's called "Remember We Are Not Alone: A Community for the Strange." We have a Facebook page. You can like. Well, I was going to say you can like, like, but you can like it. You can like, like uh-huh. it. Um, we have an Instagram. You can pass but... it notes like you did back uh-huh. in, you know, in high school and stuff. Do you like me? Totally. Yes. Like, no, like. Maybe. Good Lord. Yeah. Um, <laughs> high school. We have an Instagram that we don't update. So nice. steer clear of that one. Um, yeah, that's us. That's who yeah. we are. And uh, if you want to contact me, uh, you could do so by emailing OurStrangeSkies at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Our Strange Skies. That's a really succinct way of doing it. <laughs> and finally, just don't forget to look up. And if you do, don't don't tell anybody about your damn UFO sightings. If you're somebody like Ed Walters, just don't even waste your time. And, um, yeah, you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. In Ed Walters, we do not, not trust. at all. And remember, whether you are constructing a false model in order to hoax a lot of people or acting out a new age interpretation of the giver or being hunted like a great white whale you are not alone